Hello cultists, and uh, welcome to this very special holiday treat, Christmas gift, winter solstice um, survival tool, whatever you need to kind of get through the holiday season, we have it for you. Um, this is, of course, uh, coming to you from the cast of Cthulhu. I am Jim Rohner. And I'm James McCormick. And uh, joining us is a wonderful motley array of people to bring you tonight the virtual table read of the unproduced Guillermo del Toro script for At the Mountains of Madness, based on the H.P. Lovecraft um, novella of the same name. Um, we've been teasing it out for a while. I've had the idea for even longer, and I'm so excited that all of these people have joined us to help bring this, I don't want to say vision, um, let's say um, exercise in um, eldritch horror uh, to life. That sounds just about right. So um, we're going to kind of go through and introduce um, who we are, where we're from, and what roles we will be portraying uh, during this table read. Since I am talking, I might as well start. Um, if you uh, have been listening to the cast of Cthulhu for a long time, you know me as the one of the guys that doesn't shut up. I am Jim Rohner. Uh, I will be playing tonight the part of uh, Gilman Lake, who is the uh, businessman uh, funding the expedition. And now um, anyone else can just kind of hop in. Actually, James, you know, as the co-host of Cast of Cthulhu, why don't we go to you next, and then we'll just uh, let everyone else kind of fill in. Sure. So, you know, um, I'm James McCormick, the co-host of this nice little podcast that we've been doing for a while. And... I'll be playing Gunnarsson, the dog handler, one of the dog handlers on the expedition. And uh, I'm uh, Brian Callahan. Um, I'm one of the co-directors for the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival. And uh, tonight I'll be playing uh, Peabody, a scientist, as well as Moulton, a pilot who's on the expedition. And uh, I am told a number of other sailor, sailor ones, hospital director, McTeague, Sumner, Dr. Hennessy. Uh, so if there's any big pauses, that's probably my fault. Sorry for the dead air. I am Brian Muldoon. I am a coworker to Jim here and a co-host to the Happy Harvest Horror Show podcast. I am helping out with stage directions tonight and playing the Lieutenant Commander, British Council, reporters, and the communications officer. Awesome. I'm Josephine Maria Janisak Leschinski. Um, I am a film critic and the author of A Coven in Essex County, a prequel to um, in Shadowver and Smith. I am playing Higgins, Starkweather, and doing stage directions. I'm Lehman Kessler. Uh, I am uh, the uh, uh, producer of Ask Lovecraft, the uh, Lovecraftian uh, comedy uh, question and answer show. And I'm also a mayor of a small fog shrouded village. So I will be playing Gedney, the camera operator and uh, doing some stage directions tonight. Hi friends, I'm Stephen Foxworthy. I am uh, one of the hosts of the Disenfranchised podcast um, where um, my friend Brett Wright and I talk about uh, movies that uh, did not uh, get, uh, become franchises, were intended to and did not. Um, and uh, I am going to be uh, reading the part of Wild Man, uh, also Stranger and Professor Dyer this evening. Spoilers, uh, that's all the same person. What? Yes. Sorry about that. Uh, I am Brett Wright, the hey. aforementioned co-host of Disenfranchised. Hey, I buddy. Guess. Um, I will be uh, playing Captain Douglas, the captain of the ship Arkham, and uh, who's the other person I'm playing? Where'd I go? Fowler, the chemist on the expedition. 
Uh, hey, folks. Uh, I'm Sean Meehan. I'm a filmmaker type person, I suppose. Uh, and uh, I will be reading the part of Larson, the other dog handler. Hello, I am Gwen Callahan. I am the other co-director of the HP Lovecraft Film Festival and um, also the co-owner of Psychographics in Arkham Bazaar. And we also run the Portland Horror Film Festival. So we're just immersed in horror. It's all of our lives are horror. Everything's so awful. horror. That's <laughs> <laughs> a little bit too on the nose. Um, hi, I'm Jessica Scott. I'm a film critic and writer focusing mainly on horror, of course. Um, I'm going to be playing Walter Danforth, Dyer's scientific companion, and Pip, uh, Bob's 17-year-old brother. So that is the uh, the fantastic crew that we have assembled for this uh, this what should be a wonderful and horrific time, if all goes well. So... Without further ado, um, Josephine, why don't you usher us into the Mountains of Madness? Okay. At the Mountains of Madness by Guillermo del Toro and Matthew Robbins. Fade in. Exterior, coastal waters, dawn. Gray skies, desaturated light. Slack tidal waters heave gently under a blanket of heavy mist. A wooden fishing scow gradually takes shape. Superimposure. October 1939, Hobart, Tasmania. Four Aboriginal Australian fishermen are on board, hauling in a net. Silvery fish flop in the bilge as the men transfer the bountiful catch into an ice-filled void. Or hold, sorry. One of the fishermen suddenly sees something. The chatter and work come to a stop. Silence. Except for the thumping of the dying fish gulping for air. With infinite slowness, a huge, derelict whaler floats into view, listing heavily. Its half-exposed bottom encrusted in barnacles and rust, the hulk dwarfs the fishing boat. High on one side is a faded name, Arkham. On board, later. Thunk. A grappling hook sails over the rail and lands on the main deck. An Australian patrol boat has drawn alongside. A dozen sailors climb onto the wreck, fully armed. The hatches and windows are smashed, the wheelhouse crushed. Bloodstains blacken the decks, the stairs and ladders have been torn out and twisted. At the stern, a faded American flag hangs in tatters. The boarding party fans out wordlessly, awed by the destruction. The men switch on their torches and peer down the stairs, water everywhere. Crash! A steel floor collapses, landing a seaman waist deep in rusty water one level down. The sailors wade through tilting corridors, stopping to gawk at a cluster of mummified dogs fused onto a hatchway. The snarling teeth shine in the dim light. In a stateroom, a lieutenant commander examines a shelf stacked with 35 millimeter film cans. A handwritten label reads, Miskatonic University, Antarctic Expedition, 1930. 1930? The officer puts the cans into a leather pouch. Corridor. Up ahead, a storeroom. One of the men tries the door, shut tight, as a lieutenant commander approaches. It's locked from the inside, sir. With a hunk of scrap metal, the officer bashes on the lock. Inside, pushing aside floating crates and planks, they play their lights over the riveted bulkheads, which are scratched and buckled. Oh, blimey. Great God almighty. The lieutenant commander follows his gaze. The madman, panting, wild-eyed, a crouching old man stares madly at them. Chin deep in the rusty water, his pale features and dry skin are in sharp contrast with his glittering wide open eyes. 
Can you understand me, sir? If you can, just nod your head. The seaman approaches. Sir, don't be afraid. We're, we're here to help you, sir. The seaman stops, becomes aware that the rotted remains of a human being are glued to one of the bulkheads. Disbelieving, he moves for a closer look. Suddenly, screaming, the lunatic stands, revealing in his hands a rusty fire axe. Don't touch him! With a brutal blow, he sinks the axe deep into the seaman's chest. As the water reddens, other sailors leap onto him, but he shakes them off and chops again, catching one man in the back. Bang. Lieutenant Commander leans in from the doorway, his gun smoking, aiming for a second shot. The madman drops to his knees, his grimace exposing hideous broken teeth. His wild hair is yellow-gray, and a long, scraggy beard conceals gaunt features. His bulging, terrified eyes are pale blue. He touches the spreading blood stain on his filthy coat and stares at his reddened hand. A gun? You shot me, my blood. I'm a back. With a sigh, he falls face forward into the water. The men close in. Cut to exterior, Hobart Docks, day. Bright sunshine warms the docks of Sullivan's Cove, Hobart's busy harbor. The Union Jack is everywhere as English sailors provision a sturdy freighter, HMS Moonstone. They load water barrels, crates of fresh food. Sailors carry a couple of dog sleds up the gangway. The bemetalled ship's captain, Alan Starkweather, a no-nonsense, ruddy-faced veteran, walks briskly down the dock, followed by his warrant officer. He signs a few forms and climbs into a shiny black Bentley. Its fenders decorated with consular flags. Exterior, Hobart Street's day. A chauffeur drives the Bentley through the colonial era streets where uniformed British and Australian soldiers mingle in color with colorfully dressed natives. In the Bentley, Starkweather and the local British consul are seated on the rear of the car. You're how close then, Captain Starkweather? Two days and counting, sir, if the weather holds. You ever heard of the Arkham? The consul hands him a sealed package. Lost at sea almost a decade ago, along with her sister ship, the Miskatonic. Starkweather opens the package, maps, memos, and the 35 millimeter film cans from the ship. She just fetched up here last night with a survivor on board. Cut to exterior military hospital, day. The Bentley sweeps past manicured lawns, palm trees, and colorful flower beds. It parks at the main entrance where Starkweather and the consul get out. A pair of uniformed sentries salutes smartly as the men enter the building. Hospital corridor. Steel bars. It's the prison ward. Starkweather and the consul follow the hospital director. I must remind you, gentlemen, that despite the patient's sedation, we consider him extremely dangerous. Two men are dead, one in grave condition. We had to amputate an arm. The corpse on board, has it been autopsied? Shotgun wound. He opens another door. Starkweather stares in amazement. Interior, shower room, continuous. The madman is propped up on a stool, his bony shoulders swathed in bandages. He's shackled to the white tiled walls with long chains fastened to his neck, wrists and ankles. Burly uniform sentries stand guard as two orderlies caution, cautiously cut the man's fingernails and hair. Good Lord, do you know his name? I'm afraid not. He hasn't said a word. Starkweather sits down opposite the man and studies his gaunt features. Sprechen Sie Deutsch? Vous parlez Francais? No response. We've been through all that. I say he's a yank. 
the consul comes over to him. The Admiralty feels that, given your destination, it's essential that you look into it. Before you sail, you understand. Starkweather can't conceal his impatience. I'm hardly in a position to, to get involved with this. With Hitler in Poland, my timetable is even more urgent. I have to reach Antarctica by... Fwep! The stranger wraps a bony hand around Starkweather's arm. Starkweather grimaces. It hurts. Not Antarctica. The man's grip is like steel. You must not go. I say, sir, let go. Now. The stranger gulps back tears and looks at the other men, barely able to control his voice. You must not sail to Antarctica. The man totters to a mirror, dragging his chains. He leans close to the mirror, pulling back his long hair. He touches his face, aghast. Could you be more specific, sir, about what you're warning, sir? What year is it? 1939. 1939. At the mirror, the stranger twitches in horror as something moves beneath his skin. A faint, jagged fissure opens. His fingers elongate and undulate, suddenly devoid of cartilage or bone. No. In a brutal, sudden shock cut, his face and chest extrude into a mass of hungry, wet pseudopods that whip wildly in the air. Howling, the stranger turns away. And and then, just as suddenly, his appearance reverts to normal, back to scene. The other men stare at him. What's wrong? Did did you not see it? Did I change? I... I cannot trust my eyes, my mind. He grows increasingly distraught, yanking at his chains. If I change, if I do, you must kill me. You hear? You must kill me or I will infect the world. The sentries restrain him. Starkweather approaches. Sir, your name, sir. What is your name? I, my name is William Dyer, adjunct professor, Miskatonic University Expedition. The hospital director takes notes. And your age, Professor Dyer? I am, I was, I was 25 years old when we left America. Dissolved to exterior Miskatonic campus, night, flashback. Camera pulls back from young William Dyer. At 25, wearing a tuxedo, he's almost unrecognizably healthy and handsome. A party is underway in a flower garden where prosperous New England donors and faculty mingle under festive paper lanterns. In the background, the imposing red brick buildings of the university. I was handpicked for the voyage by Dr. Gilman Lake, chairman of the biology department. Dyer poses with a group of distinguished scientists, Atwood, Pabodi, Pabodi, Fowler, Dyer, and Lake, beneath the wing of a huge aluminum aircraft. News photographs gather round. Along with my best friend, Walter Danforth, a geologist like me. Danforth, an appealing boyish scholar, runs up for the photograph. He grins at Dyer as the reporter's flash powder light up their faces. Superimposure, September, 1930, Miskatonic University, Arkham, Massachusetts. The center of attention is Professor Gilman Lake, 62, a charismatic natural leader. More flash powder explosions as yelling press photographers crowd around him. He leans close to Dyer and Danforth. Dreadful, isn't it boys, all this hubbub? Our scientific community, as hidebound as the Vatican. But we're showmen, really. Forced to thrive as vaudevillians. Forced? The rest of the group (laughs) chuckles. Thank you very much, Atwood. Just grin and bear it. Bob Gedney, a rakish newsreel cameraman, 
stands on a table cranking his 35 millimeter motion picture camera. His little brother, Pip, 17, is ready with an extra film magazine. Come on, Professor Lake, say something. I'm running out of film. Pip laughs, and the crowd applauds as Lake takes the microphone. Our trip will be one of discovery. Antarctica promises rich fossil records, and with them, important clues to the origin of all species. Danforth notices a beautiful young woman standing in the shadows under an elm tree. He nudges Dyer, who abruptly leaves the lineup. In fact, we're seeking our place in the evolutionary ladder and answers to age-old questions as to our very nature. Exterior, garden, moments later. At the margins of the campus, the woman is walking away. Anne! Anne, wait! As Dyer catches up with her, she turns to face him. She is visibly pregnant. Anne, what are you doing here? I'm sorry, Bill. I shouldn't have. Dyer gazes into Anne's sad eyes. I'm leaving for Providence. Tonight. No, no, please, Anne, don't. I'll I'll be back in the summer. She hands him a key, an uncomfortable silence. You know how long I've worked to be part of this. The crowd behind them cheers. A band strikes up a celebratory waltz. You look happy with them. Wonderful, really. Goodbye. She kisses him on the cheek and turns to leave, anguished. Dyer stops her, holds her hand. You're afraid you'll miss something? This is your child coming, and you'll miss that. They stand for a moment, looking at each other. Wait. Anne, wait. I'll stay. With you. Then let's leave. Now. You'll send Dr. Lake a telegram tomorrow. I have to do it face to face. He's not your father, Bill. He may think he has a hold on you, but he doesn't. Not unless you give it to him. Still, I owe it to him, Anne. Trust me. Will you wait? For the last time, I will. He kisses her again and hastens off. Cut to exterior garden night. The guests sip champagne and admire various contraptions on the display. A dornier plane, a field laboratory, and a couple of diesel generators. I should have left then and there. Anne knew it. She knew me better than myself. Unfortunately, so did Lake. Lake shows the reporters a massive Jules Verne-like drilling apparatus. Heck of a rig, huh? Five-inch bore, self-cleaning auger. Brilliant idea. Take a bow, Frank. He hauls forth Pabody, a thin, well-bred English engineer. More picture-taking. But it's so big. How do you plan to transport it? Lake eyes Pabody, who obediently takes his cue. It folds into sections. They take no more than 20 cubic feet. The whole thing is transportable on dog sleds. Whoops. Always travel light, gentlemen. A couple of ships, a few tons of food, four airplanes, and something warm for the winter. The reporters laugh, eating it up. Young Dyer, just in time. Join us. Lake snatches two glasses of champagne from a passing tray. Uh, Professor Lake, there's something we need to talk about my participation. Lake takes Dyer aside, hands him a drink. Bill, Bill, I'm not blind. I know what you're going through. I too was young once. Do exactly as you must. I'm very sorry, sir. Oh, no, no, please, no apologies. But before you leave, a crate arrived this morning. It'll take only a minute. A crate? Uh, From whom? What's in it? Lake glances over at Danforth, who grins in anticipation. Something you must definitely see. Interior Natural Science Hall, night. 
Lake leads Danforth and Dyer down a corridor lined with tall glass cabinets containing bones and pickled specimens. Running the length of the vaulted ceiling is a complete whale skeleton. Did I ever tell you that they named this wing after my grandfather? Uh, Yes, sir. I believe you did. And that the library was... Named after your father. You've mentioned that too, sir. Twice. Lake chuckles. They climb a flight of stairs. Forgive me. I tend to dwell on it. But it's not easy, you see. Having these illustrious dead men weighing on your shoulders... Not easy at all. At your age, time has no meaning. It's of no consequence, but... He unlocks the door to an office. I'm 52. For the longest time, I had the certainty that mine has been a life lived in vain. Sir, you have achieved great... I said, had. He opens the door. Dyer's jaw sags in astonishment. Interior, Lake's office, same. Lake's office is wall-to-wall books and glass cases. In the center, something stands, unseen by camera. The creature was heavily decomposed when fossilization began, but the striations on both flanks clearly suggest the existence of other appendages. You see? Sir, I've never seen anything like it. No one has, actually. As Dyer's approaches, the display comes into view, a massive, if fragmentary, fossil of a monstrous creature. Outside, the party is in full swing. Lake glances through the window into the garden and is directly below, waiting. Want to venture a date? Uh, there are faint traces of a layered str- stromatolite. Yeah, that's the that's the word I was looking for. Thank you. Uh, that would suggest Precambrian, late Archaean. Impossible. Nothing remotely as complex as this creature existed on Earth. It must be a fake. Oh, it's real. That much I'm sure of. You may recall the Randolph expedition. Yes. Sir, six six months ago, uncharted stretch of land uh, west of Mount Lister. Precisely. Not much came of it, as I recall. That's what was said, wasn't it? In fact, Professor Randolph was intimidated by this find. I am not. Outside, Anne leaves. If we can dig up further evidence to sustain its provenance... No. We'll make history, Bill. Sorry, I froze momentarily there. I love this computer. I love it so much. Um, Editor, me, edit this out. Are you interested in that, Dyer? Making history? Dyer's eyes gleam with excitement. They shake hands. Cut to exterior Antarctic Ocean day. Two whalers sail through frozen waters, the Arkham and her sister ship, the Miskatonic. Exterior ship's deck at sea. A two-masted brig, the Arkham is laden with the drills and seaplanes. Smoke curls from the single funnel. A quarter mile away, the Miskatonic sails through heavy seas. Superimposure, October 20th, 1930. Antarctic Circle. A small plane flies overhead. Main deck, the Arkham. On deck, excitement mounts as the plane releases four bundles which float down on small parachutes. Sailors grab and open them. Inside, sacks of mail. By mid-October, our ships had crossed the Antarctic Circle. There were wooden ex-whalers, the Arkham and Miskatonic, reinforced for ice conditions. On board, there were four Dornier airplanes, eight pneumatic drills, 55 sled dogs, and thousands of pounds of food, fuel, and equipment. Captain Douglas, a distinguished man in a white beard, nods to his second-in-command, Higgins, who blows a whistle. That's me. All right, you lot, come and get it. 
Three sailors distribute the mail, reading off the names on the envelopes and packages. And yet, the most precious object on board every two weeks was a simple envelope. Chesterton. Daniels. Danforth. Dyer's in the crowd waiting for his name to be called. Denton. Friedrich. Horn. Nothing. Dyer is disappointed. And the saddest of all things, the lack of one. Danforth opens a quick carton of books. Look, Bill, for my mother. Some Jules Verne, Twain, and the narrative Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket. Very appropriate. My sister says Boston's having a cold snap. That's funny, huh? A cold snap? Dyer smiles faintly, hiding his feelings. Suddenly, Pip rushes past, carrying electrical cables. He descends through the galley, almost toppling the cook who doils hot soup to half a dozen hungry sailors. Four crew members, amongst them Pibody and a bearded meteorologist Moulton, are playing poker at the mess table. Pip whizzes by and enters the ship's laboratory, where Daniels, Sumner, and Gordon are unpacking the precious fossil. Gordon, a zoologist, is a touchy New Yorker. Damn, kid. Watch it. Sorry, Dr. Gordon. Pip scampers down a spiral staircase to the kennels, a cacophony of barking. There are two dog handlers, Ian Larson, a muscled, tattooed Canadian brawler, dressed lightly despite the cold, and Jan Gunnarsson, a lanky blonde Dane. They're feeding the huskies. Pip plugs in the cables as Gedney waits by his camera. Thank you, Pip. Now let there be light. He snaps on some photo floods. Larson squints in the sudden glare and notices Pip petting one of the dogs. Mr. Gedney, kindly tell your brother not to play with those animals. They ain't pets. Pip backs off. Just saying hello, Mr. Larson. I didn't... And those lights, turn them off. But you're a star, McTig, like Rin Tin Tin. Gedney is rolling film. Mr. Larson, your dogs, will they sense a difference down here instead of Canada? Larson wears a hearing aid, its microphone pinned to his shirt pocket. Ice is ice, and dogs is dogs. Down, girl. Wait your turn. We've done three Arctic expeditions. Them and us. 1921, 22, 26, 28. That's four. Larson grabs a jumbo can of horse meat. He produces a huge, gulp-inducing bowie knife and brutally lops off the can top. I'll say this much about their smarts. Uh, I'd take a good canine over a boatload of pencil pushers any day. Gunnarsson nods in agreement and Larson grins a mouthful of chromed teeth. Cut to exterior, Allen Hill's David Glacier, day. Three of the portable drills are in operation. Individual crews are in various stages of excavation and fossil recovery. In a matter of weeks, we secured excellent fossils. Superimposure, Allen Hill's David Glacier, November 8th, 1930. Tons of supplies dot the barren shore, along with sleds and drilling equipment. At a drill site, two graduate students, Ropes and Boudreaux, work under Pabody's supervision. They bring up a core sample from deep underground, then pick through it. Scientific treasures rivaling anything held in the world's finest collections. You may have read about it in the wireless reports to the Boston papers. Within its layers, specimens of ancient marine life. Shoreline. Sailors transfer the crated finds onto the ships by means of cables and a breech's buoy. Two of the Dornier planes fly overhead. Danforth helps the portly Daniels board a third plane ready for takeoff. But as the weeks pass, Lake remained distant and unsatisfied. Dyer and Danforth exchange a look. Lake keeps his back to them, gazing at the icy ocean from the shore. Interior ship's laboratory, day. Lake enters the lab. Dyer observes him, unseen from the doorway. As if all this was just so much routine and his mind was already further ahead. Displayed in all its glory is the large, mysterious fossil waiting for the rest of us to catch up. Lake sits at before it in a reverie as if in prayer. Exterior ships at sea, night. 
the Arkham and the Miskatonic churn through dark waters, superimposure, New Year's Eve, 1931. Distant music can be heard. Interior mess hall, night. A phonograph plays a merry Danish drinking song. Orndorff, a ruddy-faced Norse giant, sings along. Larson starts dancing as the rest of the sailors and academics sing the chorus. Dyer seems cheerful at last. Fowler, a kindly chemist, sporting a paper hat, hands him a drink. Here, Dyer, try this. I, uh, I'm not much of a drinker. Dr. Fowler, thanks. Danforth intercedes. It's a new year. Besides, that's Professor Fowler's own concoction. In the interests of science, then. He takes a gulp, then gags. <clears throat> I stick to Prussian, Prussian acid. Dr. Fowler, I'm sure it tastes better. More laughter from the men. Exterior, main, deck, same, lake, swaddled in furs, stands in the, at the rail, staring out at the passing icebergs. On the horizon, a moonlit majestic cloud bank seems to have swirled up into the ramparts and towers. Captain Douglas peers with a white beard whipped by the wind. We'll be into that fog bank all night and all day tomorrow. But it's utterly fantastic. Looks like a city, doesn't it? A mirage at sea, just like the desert. A glacier becomes a boat. A land blank appears where there is none. Can't trust your eyes this far south. Lake feels an intermittent light on his face and turns. The Miskatonic is flashing its signal light to communicate with the Arkham. The Miskatonic has received a message from Boston. We're having trouble with our radio. Mm, magnetic field, perhaps? Perhaps. McTighe, communications officer, approaches and hands Douglas a piece of paper. Sir. The captain reads it in silence and then hands it back to Lake. Professor Dyer, his wife and baby, died in childbirth, the both of them. Lake scans the message. The massive fog bank now towers overhead the ship, filling the sky like a collapsing skyscraper. I'll deliver the news. No, no, say nothing to him. Not now. I know him well, Captain. I'll take care of it at the right time. Trust me. The captain acquiesces. Lake pockets the telegram. They are now engulfed by fog. Interior, mess hall, night. The song ends. Everybody cheers and claps. Atwood steps in. All right, lads, drink up and simmer down. You're all a bunch of heathens, but God's patience is infinite, so. The men stop the phonograph and cluster around Atwood. Join me in a short prayer of thanks. Lord, we ask thy blessing here in this, the earth's farthest reaches. Exterior, Antarctic Ocean, night. The ship, our ships are barely visible now, swallowed by a thick fog. May you keep us safe in the many long toils ahead. Deliver us from all evil. Amen. Atwood's voice dies away. The Arkham plows through the thin ice crust. Think, think, think. A rhythmic sound, like a heartbeat. Interior, corridor, same. The empty corridors. Tink, tink, tink. All through the night, we sailed on. Sailors of the past called this Finister, the end of the world. Interior, ship's laboratory, same. Tink, tink, tink. They believed that monstrous things lived in these waters. A low-frequency vibration swells, shaking the ship and, in the lab, the peculiar fossil. The vibration seems to emanate from within it, like a homing beacon. That whoever ventured further would fall off the face of the earth. Dissolve to interior, Dyer's apart, cabin, night. Tink, tink, tink. Dyer lies face up in his bunk, fast asleep. The cabin shakes. Maybe that's exactly what we did. 
suddenly on the soundtrack, Jesse Matthews, 1927, My Heart Stood Still, fades in. Dream. Dyer slowly wakes up. Camera pulls back to reveal Dyer, sitting placidly in a couch in his parlor. On the table radio, Jesse Matthews sings on. Smiling, Dyer looks into the adjacent room where Anne gently rocks a cradle. She smiles and half closes the door. Now she sees only her shadow and that of the cradle on the wall. He stirs a cup of tea, but in the spoon tumbles from his hand. As he picks it up, he notices snow on the floor. Removing one of the floorboards, he finds that the parlor rests on ice. Dyer stares. The shadows of the adjacent room distort, and does, as does the song. The thing in the crib is festooned with squirming tentacles. A gust of wind tears the walls away, revealing a vast, featureless snowscape. And on the far horizon, a boundless, jagged mountain range. I felt utterly alone and lost, alone in the whole wide world. In his shirt sleeves, Dyer stands in the middle of nowhere. White snow, white sky, and slow motion, snowflakes swirl. Unfathomable silence all around me. And then, for the first time, I saw the dark man. A figure shrouded in a fur parka walks towards him. Cut to interior, Dyer's cabin, night. Dyer opens his eyes, still lying on his bunk. He sits up, hands shaking. He pours a glass of water. And from that nightmare, I awoke into a real one. He turns on a light and reacts. In the mirror, he sees that he is unshaven and thin, with bony fingers and long nails. Interior, ship's corridor, continuous. Dyer hurries through the empty corridor. A low, throbbing hum reaches his ears. Mess hall, continuous. Sailors are face down in the mess hall, sleeping. Soup has congealed on their plates. Potatoes have sprouted. The rotten meat seems teems with thousands of worms. Engine room, continuous. All engines are running full speed with no one manning them. The boilers are white hot. Bam, bam, bam. The ship's hull groans and shudders. Oh, Jesus. Exterior, ship's deck, night. Dyer explodes onto the main deck. The spars and lines are ghostly shapes, shrouded in thick fog. There's no one at the wheel. More sailors and officers lie in a heap on the bridge. Crack! The Arkham smashes through heavy layers of ice. The flows cracking like pistol shots. Then, only yards away, a rocky cliff goes by. Blind and heedless, the ship is bearing down on land. Dyer screams at the top of his lungs. Oh, Jesus! Oh, Jesus! Help! Somebody help! We're gonna... Bam! The Arkham shudders. The deck cargo breaks loose and topples over the side. A few unconscious sailors follow, dropping four stories onto the ice like ragdolls. Below decks, something has pierced the hull. Seawater shoots into the forward hull, washing away the crew and indulating the engine room. Nevertheless, the engines still roar. And exterior ship. The ship yaws sideways with a metallic groan. Interior, the bridge. Captain Douglas staggers to his feet. Stop all engines. Shut them down. Higgins rapidly relays the message down to interior engine room. As sailors struggle to kill the engines, the electricity fails and sparks fly. Steam pours out of a firebox. Exterior, ship's deck. Interior pushes the listing ship beam, a beam onto the rock-strewn ice field. Men shout in confusion. Dyer lunges for the railing as the world tilts under his feet. A cargo box smashes into the chains holding the derrick to the foredeck. Interior corridor. A wave of water sweeps through the dark corridor, dousing the crew and invading the kennels. 
Waist deep in water, Larson sloshes from cage to cage, rescuing his dogs. In his arms, he valiantly carries a limp, bleeding bitch. Exterior, ship's deck. The derrick breaks loose and slides towards Dyer. It embeds itself in the combing with a deafening clang. Rivets pop, struts bend, and now in the back and swings around and strips off the railing with Dyer along with it. Flying debris open up with a gash on his forehead. Dangling 50 feet above the ground, bleeding profusely, he holds on for dear life. The derrick smashes onto the ice. Dyer's hands are sliding. He's too weak to hold them. Interior, hold, day. Water gushes in from the ruptured forward compartment. Burly sailors stagger to a massive steel door and force it closed, turning a large wheel and isolating the breach. Mind deck, Danforth races to the edge of the deck and reaches down. Come on, Bill, take my hand. You can do it. I can't. I'm, I'm slipping. I... Jesus Christ, man, do it. The rail gives. For a helpless instant, Dyer is suspended in midair. In a blur, Danforth grabs, snags his sleeve. He grunts and pulls. Dyer climbs back on board. Out of breath and shaking, his friend embraces him, his hair long, his cheeks unshaven. You did it. It was you, Walter. You. Thank you. Dyer sits down heavily. Only then do they notice the other men are also gaunt and dazed. showing several days of growth and beard. On the bridge, in in the binnacle, the compass is spinning like a pinwheel. Distraught, Captain Douglas runs outside. What's that? Glinting frost races along the Arkham spars and lines. In an instant, the captain's hand is frozen to the rail. He struggles to pull it free. Dogs charge across the deck. Larson comes up from below and pushes a couple of sailors aside as he heads for Higgins. What were you doing, Higgins? Sleeping? He follows Higgins' gaze down to the waterline. The ship is wedged in among great hunks of sea ice. As the fog lifts, the men gather at the rail. Sweet Jesus, Carol and Joe. Where the crackling fuck are we? At the Mountains of Madness, a camera executes a grand pan of the new world, never before seen by human eyes. A dreamlike range of mountains surrounds them. Sharp, imperial peaks recede in a jagged ranks, bathed in low, slanting sunbeams. Two distant volcanoes send smoke into the vault of purplish sky, glowing with ice clouds. No sound from anyone, just a clicking of Gedney's movie camera as he records everything, like a man possessed. Dissolve. Black and white footage, panning slowly over a vast unknown landscape. The mountains before us surpassed anything in imagination. At 36,000 feet, they put Everest out of the running. Then the film becomes hazy, as if irritated. Interior screening room, day. In a darkened projection room, Starkweather sits alone, watching reels of black and white film. Gedney's grainy, jumpy shots. Out of the ice, Lake, Dyer, Sumer, Douglas, and Gordon are taking a theodolite reading of the nearest peaks. Precambrian slate with plain signs of many other upheaved strata, but... Lake looks through the theodolite. Among the streaks and shadows, some vague geometric shapes at the top of the mountains. At the very top, through the clouds, we could make out bizarre structures, unnatural, almost symmetrical. Sumner ventured the possibility of buildings, but back then that seemed impossible. Interior, Dyer's padded cell. Back in the prison ward, Dyer huddles in, on his bunk bed, on a, huddles on his bunk bed, shivering and wild-eyed. What on earth could have built them? What could have lived in such a cold, 
dead place. His hand caresses the scar on his forehead. The answer became evident soon enough. Nothing human. Nothing human at all. Cut to exterior, ice field, the Arkham Day. On the ice next to the Arkham, Dr. Hennessy, the Irish ship surgeon, stitches up Dyer's forehead. Whiskey is the anesthetic of choice. All around him, sailors pitch tents. Cut to exterior at the waterline, day. Higgins and a work detail are laboring around the ship's perimeter, chopping up the ice with picks and axes. Captain Douglas is frustrated. Higgins, damn you, man. I thought you cleared the prow. We did, sir, just now. Well, it's frozen solid. They watch the water around the hull, crackling and popping. The ice grows back in seconds. By God, it's growing like ivy. Get all available men here. Use the welding torches. I want her back at sea now. Cut to interior, ship's laboratory, day. Surrounded by charts and maps, lake and a half a dozen scientists are working on a broken drill. We need core samples, starting in the footholds. Ready. Abadi starts the engine, but it clanks to a stop. Subject, turn the pipe. See if it clears the housing. Dyer enters the lab. Bill, you shouldn't be walking around, my boy. I... Need to speak to you, sir. Not now, Dyer. Pabodi's right. You must rest and... Sir, have you looked at your watch? Lake guffaws. To him, the question is a non sequitur. Dyer, please, we... Mine has stopped. The others look at Fowler, whose bookish demeanor speaks of precision and fastidiousness. He holds up his pocket watch. 6.14 a.m. Reflexively, Pabodi, Atwood, and the others check their watches. Lake 2. Every clock in the ship has stopped at the same time. 6.14 a.m., January the 28th. That's weeks away. A bleak pause as they look at each other, aware again of their haggard faces. Please, gentlemen, a magnetic field, an aberration. Clocks damaged on impact. Make a note of it in your journals and move on. We have work to do. They start the drill again. This time it works. They all cheer. Dyer remains somber. Exterior, ice field camp around the Arkham. Dusk. Sailors work with welding torches around the hull. Behind them, dozens of tents are now illuminated. McTeague suddenly calls to Captain Douglas from the bridge. Captain, I'm getting something. Interior, Arkham's bridge. Dusk. McTeague sits at the radio, surrounded by the ship's officers. Dyer listens attentively. Come in, Miskatonic. Calling Miskatonic. This is research vessel Arkham. Do you read? We need assistance. Present position unknown. Indeed, something can be heard, but it's faint. Hear that, sir? A voice. A voice. I can boost it. Just give me a minute. Suddenly, a clear voice breaks through. The men eagerly close in. Come in, Miskatonic. Calling Miskatonic. This is research vessel Arkham. Do you read? We need assistance. Present position unknown. The voice is inhuman, hissing as if in mockery. The static becomes wheezing cackle. As it dies away, the men stare at one another at a loss for words. Cut to interior ship's hold, day. A clattering air pump starts up. The men fit a copper diving helmet over Orendorf's head. Underwater, forward compartment. The water is a limbo full of floating papers, planks, rags, and dead dogs. Bluish acetylene torches filter in... Sorry, bluish acetylene torchlight filters in through a diagonal slash in the bow. Orendorf drops down to examine the damage. 
Something odd and bulky has pierced the hull. Impossible to make it out. Suddenly, crick, it breaks free. Orendorf's eyes grow huge. The dark shape rumbles towards him. He twists aside, narrowly avoiding being crushed to death. He plays a light over an eight-foot green obelisk, intricately carved. The tip is crowned with five sharp cones incised with circles. Orendorf squeezes through the gash and out into the open ocean. Below the ship, Orendorf floats under the ship and shines his light on. The underside of the adjacent ice flow is illuminating a vast ghostly landscape. As far as he can see, stone monoliths, just down like jagged black teeth. Cut to ice field slash camp, day. Next to a tent, Gedney opens an equipment case and brings out lenses and filters. Pip squats nearby, developing film in a sealed steel bucket. Watch it. That footage, it's worth its weight in gold. Come on, Bob. I've done this a million times. Pathé, Hearst, Movie Tone, Money in the Bank for once. Larson and Gunnarsson pull up on a couple of sleds. They have weapons, a rifle and a shotgun slung across their backs. Where are you guys off to? We got hungry dogs. They smell fresh meat. He points at the horizon. In the fog, they can discern a few distant silhouettes. Pip squints at them. Jesus, what are they? Penguins. Using binoculars. Oh, oh. Oh, okay, penguins. Biggest I've ever seen. Pip uses a camera viewfinder to get a closer look. I've had plenty of penguin, kid. It's tasty. How would you know? You like dog food. Larson chuckles and they take off. The penguins look odd, tall as a man and motionless. Peering at them. Hey, they're completely white. Exterior, ice field, day. The huge penguins, albinos, all face the mountains. Camera pushes closer to one of them, revealing its sickly translucent skin, webbed by bluish veins. The wings are abhorrent, malformed and elongated, not unlike paws. The eyes are covered by thick, milky cataracts. Cut to exterior, forward deck, day. Under Pavody's supervision, a, two of the drills bore deep into the ice. The ship's crane hauls on a chain sling. Captain Douglas, Dyer, Danforth, and Lake watch as one of the stone monoliths comes up, dripping and shining in the sunlight. Look at that. And if what Orndorff says is true, there are hundreds. Thousands. Thousands of them right under our feet. Better pick them up fast, gentlemen, and your equipment too. As soon as the ship is free, I intend to put out to sea. And head to where, Captain? Out of here, sir. That's as good a destination as any other. In other words, you still have no idea as to our position. The Arkham is a whaling ship made of wood and steel. I reckon we've fetched up further south than she's ever been. We don't fear soon, and we'll be icebound for months. If she'll last that long, then the ice will crack her wide open and swallow us all. So we're leaving, with or without your precious cargo. Black and white footage. Eight stone monoliths covered in runes are laid out on the floor of a tent. The scientists move among them. Blake examines a fine line on a monolith's side. Main tent, day. The main tent is a large square with adjoining bays. In the glare of floodlights, Gedney and Pip film everything. They could be channel markers. I've seen similar motifs, but where? Not soapstone, it's way too hard. Pip turns off the photo lights. They give me the creeps, these things. Lined up like that, they look like coffins. Lake hears this and mutters. Dyer. 
He grabs a crowbar from a table and works it into the slit, circumscribing one of the monoliths. Help me out, will you? Dyer grabs a second crowbar and goes to work. What are you doing? Crack. The stone falls open into two perfect halves. A stream of green viscous liquid spills out and a carcass slithers to the floor. The men cover their noses. Oh, Oh, dear God, what on earth? They stand over the remains of a creature, identical to the fossil at Miskatonic U. A godsend, gentlemen. As he kneels. Don't touch it. But Atwood, we all prayed for this, did we not? I know I did. Danforth bolts from the tent, shaking. Exterior, crevasse, dusk. Two dog sleds make tracks pulled along by excited huskies. On board, Larson and Gunnarsson. Gunnarsson halts his animals, then rears back. They're at a crack in the ice, a fault line, which is half a mile long. As Larson pulls to a stop. Watch it. Long way down. The crevasse is a blue-green abyss. Larson draws a hunting rifle from his sled pack and trots up a slope. Exterior, hillside. Larson and Gunnarsson creep over the hilltop. Penguins everywhere. See that? Dumb birds. What are they waiting for? I've never seen anything like it. I have. Slaughterhouse sheep. Back home. All killing time, they face the butcher block. They know a knife is coming. It looks like they're praying. Good, because they're going to meet their maker. Bang. Larson fires. A penguin topples to the ground. The other birds barely react. One shot, and that sucker was eight foot tall. Interior, ship's laboratory, night. Danforth tears through the bookshelves in the ship's lab. He's in a frenzy, throwing books onto the floor. He opens a steamer trunk full of books and locates a tattered, leather-bound volume. Sweet Jesus. On the book's frontispiece, there's an engraving of a monster surrounded by runes and symbols. Inside, more engravings of the creature as seen when cut in half. Match cut to interior, main tent, night. The specimen cut in half, brandishing steel knives, Lake Fowler and Dyer bend over it. Lake records his comments on a wire recorder. Behind him, all the stone coffins have been opened. Speaks into microphone. When extended, their membranes resemble serrated wings. Seven feet long, tip to tip, suggesting an avian predator. Lake moves to another dead creature, pulls at the lid on what looks like a complex eye. Their multiple ocular globes are protected by a triple membranous lid, probably marine in origin. Dyer's rubber gloves and scalpel are wet with alien mucus. These five radiating lobes, they're all brain, do you think? Young man, I'm not even convinced that's the head. If it is, a cranial cavity of this size would indicate intelligence of a very high order. Fowler collects some of the green viscous liquid in a test tube. This species may be unique to Antarctica. A self-contained environment, an isolated population, like the marsupials. A two-way radio crackles to life. The storm is kicking up. I want everyone back on board. Well, much as I would like to say, I'll leave you gentlemen alone with your friends. Fowler exits, taking the test tube with him. Dyer and Lake continue the dissection. Exterior, ice field, tent encampment, night. Fowler marches back to the boat. The tents in the camp are lit from within. The acetylene torches illuminate the prow of the Arkham. Eerie, elongated shadows flicker and jump across curtains of billowing fog. The howling wind seems to jabber in an unknown tongue. 
Fowler stops and looks back anxiously. Blake, is that, is that you? The gale carries his voice away. Fowler hurries aboard. Interior, main tent, night. With forceps, Lake pulls apart a long, ugly laceration. The flesh is cut in every case, not torn or decomposed. You see, exactly here, our fossil was decapitated. He probes a sliced neck area on another specimen. Deliberate neck wounds. Something went after the head time after time. Predator. Lake shakes his head, turns off the recorder. No teeth or claw marks. I I believe they're combat wounds. Done with a weapon. Dyer examines the dead creature with a growing horror. He shudders, then laughs. <laughs> well, whatever did this, I'm just glad it's gone. Camera pushes in on one of the eight specimens. Turned away from Dyer and Lake, the long, sacking neck wound is slowly closing itself until the gray, rubbery flesh is smooth and healed over. Cut to exterior hillside night. The fog thickens as Larson and Gunnarsson push their way through the flock of penguins. The enormous birds stand their ground, hooting softly. Dark blood seeps into the snow under the fallen bird, which heaves and flops in agony. Crack shot, huh? Thing's still alive. Not for long. Larson thrusts his bowie knife into it and kills it. Hey, it's got no eyeballs. None of them do. Blind as bats, every one. Larson starts getting it out. I guess I didn't see it coming then. He pauses, repelled by a fetid vapor emanating from the insides of the dead bird. Ugh. The pearlescent internal organs spilling out are pale and weirdly deformed, more geometric than organic. My dogs won't eat that. If they're hungry enough, they will. He keeps cutting. Gunnarsson stumbles. He looks down. Larson? Larson doesn't pay any attention to him. What you said about the sheep. There's a kind of fence here. Indeed, the remains of a large misshapen fence poke up from the ice and snow. So? Who the hell built it? Unseen by then, the penguins turn their heads, all of them at the same time. And in the fog, something moves. The dogs leap to their feet, growling. Larson grabs his shotgun, loads a couple shells. Jesus, smell that? Cursing, Gunnarsson squints into the white void. Something dead. A peculiar piping sound reaches their ears. The dogs snarl and tear at the wooden posts holding them down. Larson, the birds. Larson turns. All the penguins face straight at them now. Are looking this way. The dogs are mad with fear. Gunnarsson loads the rifle. Shh, 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 dogs, simmer down. The huskies turn on him, shedding his coat. Gunnarsson backs away, terrified, as Larson rolls to his feet. The dogs break free and dash off into the fog. Molly, damn it! There follows a desperate chorus of whining and yelps. Larson runs after them. Stay here, for Christ's sake. Gunnarsson follows Larson, cursing in Danish. In the fog, Larson finds bright blood and clumps of fur on the snow. No. No, no. He hears a sad, long whimper. Half a dog pathetically drags itself toward him, trailing intestines, smearing the snow with clear pink fluid. Gunnarsson catches up as Larson falls to his knees, devastated. Oh, Christ. High in the mist, a dozen tendrils are waving like an undersea protoplasm, more shrill piping sounds. The back of the dog is suddenly writhing sinew. Larson realizes that the intestines are pseudopods growing from the dog's body. They coalesce into crab-like claws. The creature growls and explodes into a mass of translucent knobs shot through with ligaments, tendons, and coiling veins. The neck propels outward, growing a series of hungry mouths. A fleshy tongue attaches to Gunnarsson and lifts him up. His gun goes off. 
Gunnarsson disappears into a mass of vibrating flesh, screaming, fusing with it. Larson instinctively shoots, then reloads. The tendrils keep coming. Jesus, Mary and Joseph! He disappears into the fog, lost in limbo. The mist is alive with darting movement and inhuman noise. Larson stumbles and falls, losing his hearing aid. Now he's in a white limbo, effectively blind and deaf. The ice under his feet snaps. He jumps back. The ice cracks with each step. A dark, big shape looms ahead. The tough Dane groans as he sees. Oh, no. God, no. The Miskatonic, the Arkham sister ship, sunk into the ice, thickly banketed in snow, not a living soul in sight. Larson, over here. Larson turns. Here comes an accursed apparition. Gunnarsson's deformed body has fused with other creatures of unknown origin. No. Don't run. You. Come. To me. Larson stands his ground, gulping back his revulsion. Speak up, Jan. I can't hear a thing. Bam! He shoots the Gunnarsson thing point blank in the face. The creature's head explodes in a burst of pink flesh, but instantly recomposes, regaining its shape and awful purpose in midair. As it lands, it sprouts fresh tentacles, mouths, and eyes. Larson takes the only way out. He reloads and fires his gun into the ice, blowing open a hole at his feet. Above, under the ice, he jumps in. The tentacles lunge, but upon contact with the water, they sizzle and erupt in bubbles, hissing, steaming. The thing shrivels as if burned. It squeals. Underwater, Larson swims away from the sinuous dark shapes visible above the ice. He swims on, then after some agonizing seconds, he presses the tip of his weapon against the ice and fires. Ice field. Larson resurfaces, gasping for air. The shapes race at him. He checks his gun, one shot left, takes a deep breath, and dives back down. Under the ice, Larson sinks slowly away into the dark. And they were the makers and enslavers of life. They were the great old ones who filtered down from the stars when the earth was young. Cut to interior ship's lab night. Danforth is reading to the other scientists from the leather-bound volume. It's all here. The time and space anomalies, the creatures, known here as the old ones. I know that text. Schwab's translation of the Necronomicon. 1875, a collection of pagan rubbish scribbled down by an 8th century Yemeni astrologer, uh, Abdul Al-Hazred. Abadi takes the book and leafs through the yellowing pages. It breaks down their alphabet, gives us a place to start. Start what? It's an embarrassment. You can't possibly rely on such a source. Under the circumstances... Pabodi, you astonish me. That book should be destroyed, forgotten. Not if we want to leave this place. They all turn to Lake. Einstein was has written about the elastic nature of time and space. What if these creatures harness them as an energy or as a tool? If there's a residual effect here, a vortex, then our most fundamental perceptions matter no more. Yes, the ice encasing the ship is growing faster than we can melt it, because weeks may have been passing while we believe them to be just minutes. Speculation proves nothing. Then what is your explanation, sir? Mass hysteria? Your beloved Jesus practical jokes? The fact is, we're trapped here. Atwood keeps silent, but his eyes are on fire. But I believe that the puzzle can be solved. Gedney's film shows structures on top of the mountains. I say they're buildings. The answer is at hand. We must fly up there. Cut to exterior ice field day. 
The engines on both Dornier planes come to life. The propellers stir the exhaust smoke into the clear sky. The scientists are loading equipment. Gedney and Pip haul their cameras on board. Interior ship's laboratory day. Lake and Dyer pack some things into leather flight bags. Everything we've ever learned, every piece of knowledge, out the window. Physics, biology, we'll need a new set of tools, a new language. What will we find up there? Lake goes to the large headless fossil. To think that this seems so important. It was just a first clue, a piece of rubble, insignificant really. Outside, the roar of the airplane engines grows louder. Sir, we'd better hurry. We are scientists, Bill. This is what we live for. You couldn't miss this for the world. I... But Dyer has grown quiet, remembering. Blake pauses, a moment of strange intimacy. Are you glad you came along? I'm grateful. Really, it's all just a bit overwhelming. Not the answer Lake was looking for, but still. So am I. There's something... He presses a small steel key into Dyer's hand. Go to my stateroom. There's a box on my desk. Look inside. Now? Now. He grabs the leather bags and his heavy coat and steps outside. Interior Lake Stateroom moments later. Dyer enters Lake Stateroom and sees the box on Lake's crowded desk. He uses the key and opens it up. Inside, a folded telegram. It's the message from Boston. As he reads it, the din from the planes becomes deafening. Exterior ice field, day. Captain Douglas follows Lake to the waiting aircraft. Follow the coastline. Sumner's headed east. You go west. We can triangulate. You have my pledge, Captain. We will return with a way out of this. Keep the coast in sight. The Miskatonic would do that. Look for a whaling station, a weather outpost. Captain Douglas, you've made it abundantly clear. It's your ship. I, however, am in charge of the expedition. Dyer approaches. Ah, Dyer, did you... Dyer throws the telegram at him. Yes, you found... Wham! Dyer punches him in the face. A mist of blood explodes from Lake's nose as he falls back. Dyer is upon him, pummeling him again and again. Dyer, Danforth, leaps in and separates them. Lake stands, dizzy and weak. Jesus Christ, Bill, what are you doing? When were you planning on telling me? She was my wife, Lake, my wife! It's not your fault or mine, can't you see? Dyer charges again. Danforth holds him back. Anne is dead. And the baby, he knew! He's known for weeks. You're here because you knew your priorities. You just won't admit it. You chose what was best for you. Who are you to say? Everything is a distraction. Art, poetry, love, human life. So you've led us to where? Lunacy? Death? Where are you leading these men now? Huh? Where? Knowledge. Well, you can go without me. He pulls free and walks away. Lake regains his composure. Come along, Danforth. Let's go. Exterior, ice field, day. The motor spelch smoke and the first plane lifts off. Dyer bitterly observes from the ship's deck. The second plane takes off. Cut to cockpit, plane A. Molten at the controls, Lake sits next to him. Camera moves into the cabin area, plane A, where Boudreaux, Daniels, and Pip are belted in. Gedney points his camera out a window and cranks off some footage. Black and white footage. From the air, the Arkham seems like a toy. It's trapped in the middle of a white finger of ice surrounded by ocean. Interior, plane B, same. 
Sumner is at the controls with the ropes alongside him. In the main cabin, Atwood and Gordon peer through portholes. Behind him sit Danforth and Dr. Pabodi, who slowly opens his eyes. Are, are we off the ground now? Really? Up in the air? Is this your first flight, Dr. Pabodi? The old Englishman nods and hazards a look out the window. See that? The ice shelf holding the ship. The whole thing is just a peninsula. The open sea is just there. The plane shakes. Pabodi tenses and Danforth smiles, urging the old man to go on. And that? What is that? Down below, a jagged dark crack democrates from the pristine white where the ice peninsula attaches to the mainland. A, a fault line from successive melting and refreezing. Oh, uh, oh, here we go. Befetted by winds, the plane shakes violently and struggles to gain altitude. Exterior, rocky shore, same. From the ground, the planes are visible, headed into a bank of cloud shrouding the mountain peaks. Tracking over a smooth patch of snow, camera finds a naked, armless Gunnarsson on his knees. His skin is translucent, throbbing. He regards the planes with a detached cruelty. On his neck, the flesh swells and pulsates. His bare shoulders sprout arms. He slowly stands and staggers like a baby taking its first steps. His legs flex and bend, yielding an eerie spastic gait. Bit by bit, his walk becomes firm, full of purpose. The Arkham is not far away. Cut to exterior, skies above the ice field, same. The planes fly into the clouds. Interior, plane A. Plane B is in and out of the clouds, a mile to starboard. Sumner's voice crackles on the radio. I'm losing sight of you, Molten. Over. Watch your compass. We'll be out of this in a second. What now? The compass disc flips from north to south as if pulled by magnets. Interior cabin, plane B, same. In the half light from the windows, Danforth's face tenses. It's like flying through wool. Suddenly, sharp rocky slopes glide past, only yards away. Jesus, Sumner, up! Go up! Sumner heaves on the stick, practically willing the plane up. Come on, baby, climb! The plane soars upward, but a jagged outcropping of rock sly slices through the fuel tank. A wall of granite looms, dead ahead. Cockpit, plane B. Swearing, Sumner veers away. Exterior, plane B. But this time, a peak tears the landing gear off. Cockpit, plane B. Sumner fights for control. A beeping sound. The gas tank indicates empty. Sumner, you're losing fuel. Set her down now. Plane A reappears in the thinning fog. Where, goddammit? Those peaks a second ago were miles away. How in hell did we... Oh, Jesus. As golden light blasts into the cabin, Sumner looks down at... Molten, my God, look down. Cockpit, plane A, same. Molten and Lake look down upon the city by air, a broad valley covered in eons of ice, bristling with towers, spires, and rooftops. The scientists stare in awe at alien architecture, indescribably ancient and strange. The buildings vary in size, evidencing innumerable honeycombed compartments, wide ramps, and hanging terraces. The airplanes start a descent over a smooth slab of ice that grips two of the largest towers. Interior, cockpit, plane B. Sumner struggles to keep the plane on course, descending the wounded aircraft bobs like a roller coaster car. Interior, cabin, plane B. 
Everybody on board readies for a crash landing. Atwood clutches his Bible and rosary, praying. Exterior, ice sheet. Plane B touches down and immediately tilts over, breaking off a wing and describing a jagged spiral on the ice. It pitches into the base of one of the, two, one of the towers. Interior, cockpit, plane B. The windshield shatters. An overhanging stone arch rips off the roof, a blast of wind, and then a sudden impact crashes the cockpit in a twisted steel and glass. Exterior, ice sheet. The roaring plane comes to a stop. The remaining propeller bites into the ice, then snaps off. 50 yards away, plane B lands smoothly. All the occupants rush to the wreck, where which lies steaming in the shadow of a crumbling tower. When Boudreau yanks out the cabin door, Danforth is there. He pushes a dazed Atwood out to safety. Gordon and Pabodi follow. <sighs> Are you all right? Yes, yes, I think so. What about Sumner? Scratched and bleeding, ropes crawl out from the cockpit, pulling Sumner's limp body out with him. The scientist is covered in blood. L- Lloyd, Lloyd. They roll him over, but it's no use. He's dead. Oh, no, no, sweet Jesus. What godforsaken place is this? In the dying light, camera cane, in the dying light, camera cranes up and widens, revealing more of the revealing more and more buildings. But the size of the dead city is impossible to gauge. Cut to exterior main deck day. Captain Douglas stands at the rail of the Arkham with some of his men. He grimly hands his binoculars to Higgins. Nothing. Can't even hear him. One moment they're there, then... Higgins spots a small, bare figure staggering over the snow, waving. Sir, it's Gunnarsson! On the ice, Higgins and Orendorf run to Gunnarsson, who collapses in their arms. Cut to interior, Dyer's cabin, dusk. Dyer is immobile at his desk, gazing out a porthole. My heart, should, my heart stood still, plays on the phonograph. Fowler appears in the doorway. He carries a couple of wooden cases. Dyer, I need your help. The fluid surrounding the bodies. Outside, the twilight dies and is replaced by a cold blue afterglow. Dyer doesn't move. It contains a high concentration of minerals, no nutrients to speak of, but it's loaded with sodium chloride, like high-dose seawater. No answer. Fowler is about to give up when... It helped preserve them. A primitive form of embalming fluid. He gets up slowly, stops the record, and turns to Fowler. Or maybe it acted as a deterrent of some kind. They were underwater. What would they deter? That's what we're going to find out. Cut to interior, infirmary, same. The beds in the small ship's infirmary are occupied with injur- by injured sailors. A half-conscious Cunnerson looks up from his cot to see Captain Douglas and Higgins standing over him. I, I can't feel my fingers. I'm numb. Shh, we'll saw you out. Dr. Hennessy comes over. There's no frostbite. He's bruised from head to toe, cuts on his torso, thighs. I've dosed him with morphine. Has he said anything about Larson? Nothing yet. He needs to rest. In the darkness, Gunnarsson's face seems to liquefy and rearrange into a new, vaguely inhuman shape. Deliver us, O Lord, from the harm and the influence of your old enemy. Cut to exterior, ice sheet, alien city, same. Not far from the crashed plane, the surviving scientists stand at a freshly dug ice grave. So we can find our peace, as has our brother Lloyd Sumner, now and in the final days. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. 
After a muttered chorus of amens, Atwood stant nods and ropes, and Boudreaux lower Sumner's body, which is wrapped in tarps. Danforth glances up at the figure wandering the city ramparts high above, carrying a torch. Lake. He studies ancient walls, where, he, where chiseled pictograms show star-headed old ones, wielding weapons and piloting strange spacecraft. In the flickering torchlight, the creatures seem to jump about. Danforth approaches him. Danforth? Sir? Take a look. They organized their narratives in cartouches, defined by these diagonal lines. See? You should go down, sir, as a measure of respect. Once you read them right to left, upwards, it's clear enough. One of our party died, sir. Thank you, Danforth. Yes, I noticed. Contrary to what you may think, what anyone may think, I did. I'll do my mourning back in Boston. We worry because our wristwatches have stopped. But these beings, they stepped across time, crossed over from other worlds. Lake continues up the steep ramp. Danforth follows. They were scientists like us, only more so. Their minds were creative and hungry. They landed here and built all this, or more accurately, they had it built for them. Look. Lake shows him a strange mural representing a fearsome globular creature. Second race. A slave race. Beasts of burden. Shoggoths, if we are to believe this. Mutable creatures bred to perform any task. If they needed extra arms, eyes, fingers, mouth, they grew them. They were capable of mimicking any form of life down to the smallest detail. Now here, you can see the writing, the craftsmanship changing here, right here on this wall. These beasts rebelled against their masters. A war ensued. These are now their pictograms, their story. A war. These Shoggoths worshipped an ancient deity, a creature so malevolent that even the old ones were afraid. They reach the top of the rampart. Lake points to a plaza below. At the center of the plaza, carved out of a natural pillar 100 feet high, a statue of primordial creature, Cthulhu, a wild congruous of tentacles, claws, and wings. And the outcome of that war? In time, we'll know. Cut to interior, infirmary, night. Dr. Hennessy moves along the sleeping wounded men. He pauses to feel Gunnarsson's forehead. As Hennessy leaves, Gunnarsson's eyes open. He looks at the sleeping sailor in the adjacent bed. A shadow falls over the man's face. Gunnarsson's hand appears, sprouting tentacles which enter the man's nostrils and ears. After a quick wordless struggle, the sailor's face melts with Gunnarsson's rubbery fingers. Another man wakes up to find Gunnarsson and the sailor standing at the foot of his bed, shirtless and conjoined at the waist. A stump sprouts, a stump sprouts tentacles, one of which grows at the eye, one of which grows an eye at its tip. Before the man can say a word, a fresh eruption of tentacles stifles his screams. Cut to exterior, Arkham, ice field, night. In the blowing snow, the Arkham is starting to look like a ghost ship encased in ice. The barometer's bottomed out. You should wait till dawn. Radio room, same. Captain Douglas, Higgins, and McTie huddle around the radio. And hope for a weather break. Over. 
I will, but I can't carry us all. The load would be too much. Exterior, ice sheet, abandoned city, night. Moulton's is in, Moulton's in his cockpit, using the air, Moulton's in his cockpit, using the airplane radio. Gordon listens outside, bundled up against the blowing snow. I'll have to make two trips. <laughs> Fat chance. Just keep a runway clear, okay? Now, tell them about the fuel. Molten sighs, and then... One more thing. We were only, thirst- we were only 30 minutes in the air. But we've you. We've, one more thing. We were only 30 minutes in the air, but we've used more than half our fuel. Radio room, same. The men look at each other, confused. Molten, you've been gone for 10 hours. Exterior, ice sheet slash abandoned city. Molten nods wearily. He half expected something like this. Listen to me, Molten. Leave all the cargo behind. Split into two groups. Luck of the draw. Fly back with the first group as light as you can, you hear? As light as you can. Yes, sir. We'll be ready. Interior, communications deck, night. Captain Douglas sighs as McTeague signs off. Clear the runway. Ready a crew to mark the perimeter with landing lights. Suddenly, a door opens and snow flies in. Higgins turns to see, surprise, Gunnarsson. Behind him, the other men from sickbay. What are you all doing out of bed? Gunnarsson's shadow on the wall in a coxcomb of boiling tentacles. In a flash, a wriggling mass of flesh catapults into the room. Off Captain Douglas's screams. Ah. Cut to interior ship's laboratory, night. Dyer enters the onboard laboratory and collects pH measuring equipment. Fowler helps him. They hear a noise. Dyer peeks out into the corridor. Nothing. Interior, ship's corridors, night. Puzzled, Dyer steps out into the empty hallway. The bulkhead lighting flickers. A door is ajar. Dyer opens it. Interior, empty quarters. Nothing, but a few things have been overturned. Interior, ship's corridors, same. Now one of the injured sailors from the sick bay stands at the end of the corridor, mouth moving silently. Can I help you? The man stumbles towards him. In the shadows, camera glimpses, in the shadows, camera glimpses three thick strands of flesh extending from his back and legs into an adjacent bay. Still in a lab. What is it? Dyer turns to him. One of the men from sickbay. Fowler, carrying the equipment, peeks out. No one is there. Where? Maybe he found his way back. The lights flicker again. A rhythmic, metallic noise grinds at the end of the corridor. Chewing. Cut to exterior ice field near main tent, night. Carrying the equipment cases, Fowler and Dyer... Carrying the equipment cases, Fowler and Dyer walk through blowing snow into the main tent. Interior, main tent, night. The eight entombed old ones rest peacefully on steel tables. The wind howls. The tense string of light bulbs, the tense string of light bulbs flickers. Oh, here, let me. Fowler lights an oil lamp as Dyer enters an adjacent bay, separated by a flap of canvas. I'll set up a bench in here. Fowler, alone now, goes to the radio. Kevin Douglas, this is Fowler. The generator's acting up. Static. Hello? Captain Douglas? A sibilant, raspy voice comes back, mixed with the static. 
Fowler is taken aback. He snaps off the transmission. Interior, tent bay, night. Dyer opens up a pH test kit on a work table. It's portable, wonder, full of siphons and turning gears. Okay. Bring samples from each one and I'll get started. Interior, main tent, night. Yes, coming. Fowler gathers up some flasks. For a moment, this... For a moment, the supine th- things are all. For a moment, the supine things are all out of view. Behind him, a rattle. Fowler whirls around. Nothing has changed except a scalpel lies on the floor, discarded. Carrying the flask, Fowler picks it up. When he straightens up, all the beings are upright. Standing behind him, tall, gray, and slender, they glide silently to block his escape. One of them whips out an appendage and snaps snatches the scalpel from his hand. Another flips him off his feet. Tent bay, same. Dyer hears glassware breaking and a muffled voice in the other section of the tent. The lights go off, leaving only the oil lamp. Oh, great. Dr. Fowler? Suddenly, an odd shadow crosses the other side of the tent flap. Then the clink of stainless tools on an autopsy table. He gets up, more noises. Snipping and cutting. Dyer cautiously approaches the canvas divider and pushes it aside. Interior, main tent, same. Dyer recoils. Dear God, no! Standing over the writhing body of Dr. Fowler, the alien entities conduct their own brutal dissection. One of the old ones turns an inquisitive gaze at Dyer. Fowler's legs drum on the autopsy table. Dyer screams and bolts outside. The creature follows. Exterior, ice field, night. Outside, a snowstorm in hell. On the ice field, fires are blazing. Men rush past, pursued and engulfed by shape-shifting masses of flesh. Near the boat, gunshots and screams. The tentacled old one pursues Dyer, crawling on its wings like a bat on land. Running blindly through a maze of tents and dog pens, Dyer rounds a corner and finds Gunnarsson, or what's left of him affixed to a globular entity methodically impaling the frenzied dogs on its spidery legs. A gaping maw at the center of the Gunnarsson thing ingests them, dissolving their bodies in gelatinous tissue. The old one rounds the corner, a pause. The two ancient enemies are face to face. Screeching, the Gunnarsson thing attacks, engulfing its adversary in a tide of flesh. Dyer runs on as dozens of misshapen but recognizable crew members converge upon him. He doubles back. Behind a tent. Suddenly, Dyer stumbles upon Larson, who swirls on him with a shotgun, one of several he has strapped to his back. Oh, Jesus, no, please, please don't. You're scared. That's good. Help me out here quick. He's stuffing burlap sacks into a backpack. Dyer blindly follows suit with no idea why. A roar as the adjacent tent collapses. Move. He shoves Dyer aside and fires his shotgun at the oncoming thing. The creature screeches and bubbles, twisting in agony. Follow me. Larson leads Dyer to a dog sled laden with burlap sacks. He reloads the shotgun and tosses it to Dyer. You fall off. You're on your own. You understand I ain't coming back for you. Damn. Larson shoots a second shotgun as two approaching creatures disintegrating them. He pushes Dyer onto the sled. Hold on, egghead. He cracks his whip and the dogs start pulling as the sled gathers speed. Dyer ventures a look back at the chaos surrounding the Arkham. I thought of hell, as I conceived of it as a child, a place of chaos and damnation. 
The sled moves towards the mountains, which are black against the purple sky. No one could have imagined what was at hand, nor how much worse it could get. Cut to interior ice sheet, abandoned city. Plane A is covered by a tarp. The blizzard is brutal. Wind drones through the city stone canyons and empty avenues like a pipe organ. The men have set up a campsite in a interior vaulted stone gallery, night. Standing next to a bonfire, Molten readies a handful of straws. I'll fly back as soon as I can. You have my word. But for now, with no argument, short straws stay, long straws go. The men draw their straws. Atwood gets a long one. So does Danforth, Gadney, Daniels, and Lake. Gordon gets a short one. So do Ropes, Boudreaux, Pabody, and Pip. If it clears, we leave at daybreak. No equipment, no extra load. Wait, please. I, I accept the rules, but my brother, he should be on that plane, not me. I'll stay behind. Fine by me, son. No, no, we stay together. Pip grabs Gedney, imploring. I'm not leaving without you. Never. You hear me? Never. Shh, it's okay. I'm here. For him, you understand. I have nothing to offer. Gadney fumbles through his pockets, producing a pocket watch and a modest leather wallet. But what I have is yours in exchange for your seat. Silence. No one's willing to trade. Atwood looks away, ashamed but afraid. Lake notices this, full of foreboding. Cut to exterior ice field, night. More blowing snow. Larson's dog sled approaches the base of a mountain, speeding toward a rock wall. Dyer grows nervous and looks at Larson, who cracks his whip, demanding more speed from the huskies. Larson. Larson, my God, you- Shut up, egghead, I'm driving. The sled accelerates down a slope, straight at the wall. Dyer closes his eyes and curls up. At the last second, a narrow passage comes into sight. They whiz in. Interior, rock passage, continuous. The sled flies through, almost scraping the rough walls. Oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus. Larson is delighted. He cracks the whip even harder as passage widens, giving onto a vast ice cave continuous. A natural amphitheater filled with colonnades of sparkling stalactites. Larson stops the sled. Dyer looks around. Where the hell are we? Somewhere safe. I found it by accident. He points at a hole blasted in the ceiling. Oh, sorry. He points at a hole blasted in the ice floor. Dark water is visible below. We're about four miles from the ship. I've been gathering provisions all day. Where, where have you been? We should go back. Help them. We can't help them. We'll help ourselves. Those things back there, they've probably taken the whole crew by now. Not everyone. No, don't say that. Look, you saw enough. So shut up and meditate on it. Or make notes or whatever your professor brain wants to do. Me, I'm tired. Grab a fur and lay back. If we talk, we'll do it in the morning. Dyer obeys. He plops down on some furs from the sled. Then he hears a rustling noise deeper in the cave. Larson? But Larson is busy unloading the sled. Dyer grabs his gun and moves towards the noise. Something moves in the darkness. He snaps on a torch and comes face to face with an albino penguin. He screams. Larson runs over and pushes him away. Shut up. Shut up. Are you crazy? It's just a fucking penguin. The dumbest bird on the planet. More noise. Then half a dozen eyeless albino penguins waddle out from the tunnel, clucking and squawking. They have no eyes. So? What's the difference? Caves, tunnels, they're pitch black. Caves? There's more? Far as I can tell, the mountain's full of them. He 
He sees Dyer shivering near shock. You okay? That thing, it... It, it scared you? A little, I... Bam. Larson shoots one of the penguins in the head. It topples over. There. Now for the last time, Egghead, shut up and go to sleep. Dyer lies down a few feet from the carcass of the penguin. Its spasms cease as it dies. Exhausted and horrified, Dyer turns away and closes his eyes. Exterior, mountain range slash three views. The snow swirls through the canyons and peaks of the mountains of madness. Fade out. Fade in. Exterior, ice sheet slash abandoned city. Dawn. Dawn breaks. Pale sunlight creeps up the colossal black monoliths and angular turrets. Moulton and Gordon pull the tarp from the plain, while Atwood, Gedney, and Pip clear a path in the fresh snow. Exterior ice sheet, abandoned city. The plane's engine's drone, ready for takeoff. Danforth stands by the boarding stairs. Gedney tearfully embraces his brother. Lake approaches them. There's no good reason for the two of you to be separated. So here, take this. He hands Gedney his long straw. Oh, sir. Thank you, sir. That's quite all right. Gedney proffers his watch and wallet. A deal's a deal, sir. I Please put them away. Nothing a good Christian wouldn't do. There is not an ounce of Christian faith in you, Lake. You don't fool me. You want to stay. Lake embraces Danforth, clutching the Necronomicon. I hope you don't mind me holding on to this for a while. Danforth nods, keeping his emotions in check. I don't lend out my books. Tonight, on the Arkham, you'll give it back. Understood? Tell... Tell Dyer when you see him. Tell him that I'm very sorry. I really am. Lake smiles sadly. Tell him that I felt... The road to greatness is paved with old glories like me. I didn't want him to be left behind. You'll tell him yourself, personally. I know you will. Daybreak. The plane takes off. The men left behind watch as it gains altitude. Interior plane cabin, same. The plane flies over the towers. The view below is soon obscured by clouds. Atwood focuses on his Bible. Gedney puts his arm around Pip as the sun pierces the cabin, bathing their haggard features in pink daylight. Exterior, sky above the city. As the plane disappears, the sun plays over the city. Ice sheet, abandoned city. The ruins are gleaming. Lake smiles and turns to Gordon. Praise the Lord, gentlemen. You're stuck with me. He gathers some rope and climbing equipment. What are you doing? We're going for a walk. Cut to exterior ice field. Day. Dire. Sleeping. It was then that I had the dream again. Suddenly, he opens his eyes and gets up. He is alone on the ice field. He is wearing street clothes as in his last dream. I felt the cold, the loneliness, just as before. And I looked for the dark man. And yes, again, I found him. In the distance, the fur-covered figure of the dark man. Without knowing why, without really wanting to, I called out. Dyer waves his arms. Over here! Over here! The figure stops, slowly turns, then walks directly at Dyer. And it was then that I saw my mistake, that thing. It imitated our shape, our walk, but it was not human. It comes close, its hooded face remaining in shadow. Dyer backs away, frightened. I knew, somehow, that whatever horror lurked under that hood, if I ever saw it, would drive me mad. The man stretches out his arms, fingers clawing the air. Camera pushes into the hood with a roar, barely visible as a boiling mass of flesh, a screaming void. Cut to interior ice cave day, 
Dyer opens his eyes. He's in the cave. Bad dream, Egghead. Larson is busy at an improvised table made of wooden boxes. One of the dogs regards Dyer with curiosity as he gets up. There's a tin of biscuits over there, boiled beef and some rum. Dyer nods, still sleepy. Dyer's cave is spectacular. Half the ceiling is pure ice, allowing light to filter in as if from a church window. Dyer grabs a biscuit and takes a swig of whiskey. <coughs> Where'd this come from? You don't want to know. Larson is refilling dozens of shotgun shells with a white powder. Next to him are about five sawed-off shotguns. You want to hit help? Sit down and do... Exactly what you do. Look it, we're screwed. All right, get to work and I'll tell you what I know. He hands over a box of shells. Crack them open and empty half the load. Just half, then pour this in. Dyer grabs the powder, looks at it, tastes it. Salt? You're using salt? Larson starts sawing off a shotgun barrel. Does the job. One of those things jumped after me into the sea, melted and squealed. Dyer reflects, trying to figure it out. Soluble salts, metal and non-metal compounds, chlorine, bromine, formed of their species. Elements existed before them. Mm-hmm. Goes good on the beef, too. He takes the bottle of rum from Dyer and gulps down a quarter of it. You know, in Canada, that's how the kids kill leeches. A little salt. We moved, uh, we love to watch them squirm. He smiles a mouthful of steel at the memory, then passes the bottle back to Dyer. We should light a bonfire. I don't advise it. In the daylight, they couldn't... Larson motions him to silence, tries the shotgun for balance. Kid, let me show you. Interior ice cave tunnels, day. Larson guides Dyer into a natural ice chamber. Dozens of tunnels and passages lead off into the heart of the mountain. They cross a narrow stone bridge which crumbles beneath their feet. Dyer cautiously peers down into a huge chasm. The whole mountain is riddled with tunnels, like moles, ice, rock. Same difference. They go for miles. Leading where? Where I don't give a shit. He puts his hand on the rock, feels a rumble. Now, lean over and don't move. The rumble grows until the whole area shakes. A few stone blocks break loose. Several stories down, they splash into water. Terrified, Dyer bolts, but Larson holds him in place. <sighs> under Kendall, Central, Harvard, South Station, under Washington, under Park Street. Larson clamps a hand over Dyer's mouth. A massive shoggoth slips through a tube directly below, separated from them. And by only a few inches of clear ice, its many eyes are moving, scanning. After it passes, you can move now. Dyer collapses, trembling. The fuck were you mumbling? Sorry, I all I could think of subway stops back in Boston. Larson gestures for silence. They hear a sputtering engine. It's a plane. They're coming back. Exterior ice field, Arkham. The air is dancing with snowflakes. Dyer and Larson exit the cave and run up the hill to see the plane flying dangerously low to the ground, buffeted by the wind. Cut to interior cockpit, same. Moulton and Danforth are white-faced, seated in the cockpit. The ground blurs by. What the hell is going on? They didn't clear runway. Jesus. The engine is coughing. On the dash, the fuel level reads empty. Arkham, this is Moulton. Do you read? We have no clear runway. I repeat. No clear runway. Over. No answer. The engine restarts with a roar. The plane momentarily heaves up, then drops. We're going down one way or another. Tell everyone to brace for it. Exterior frozen lake, day. Pitching like a toy, the plane drops over a range of foothills. Fifty men from the Arkham stand like statues on the snow, watching the plane come down. But there's something wrong with them. They all seem oddly similar. Cut to the plane landing. It plows into the fresh snow, sliding for hundreds of feet in a rooster tail of white. 
Interior, the cabin. Chaos, yelling with fear. Pip and Bressy's Gedney. Steam and smoke belch from the engines that come to a stop. Exterior, ice field. The impassive Arkham sailors immediately march towards the plane like choreographed puppets. In the cockpit, Danforth goes back into the cabin. Moulton looks angrily at the approaching throng. God damn them. What were they doing out there? Standing around like morons? They're going to catch hell. He jumps out of the cockpit and heads toward the group, and all his bravado fades. Oh, dear Jesus, no. Interior, the cabin, a scream from outside. You hear that? What? A scream. I didn't hear. Shh. Someone's coming. Outside, low murmurs. Suddenly, the cockpit door opens. Snowflakes fly in, pause. Then Gunnarsson enters. Oh, Jesus, Gunnarsson! <laughs> it's just Gunnarsson! And so it is. But the nightmare begins. Pip turns to find a second Gunnarsson also staring at him from a window and standing next to him, another Gunnarsson. And further down, leering from the cockpit windshield, three more. Jesus Christ almighty. The Gunnarsson thing standing in the doorway grins, but the grin expands into a massive mouth and open snout, shining with endless rows of teeth. Arms extend like fleshy vines, grabbing Gedney. Pip screams. All the faces at the windows scream too, as if in mockery, and the mouths meld and the flesh fuses, and all the hungry maws press against the window glass like a diabolical parody of a playful child. Danforth grabs Pip and pulls him away. Now an inquisitive blob of protoplasm oozes up from behind the Gunnarsson thing and surveys the cabin with a dozen filmy eyes. Danforth and Daniels struggle with the emergency door at the rear of the plane. The snow has jammed it. Danforth and Daniels redouble their efforts and manage to crack it open. Danforth pushes Pip out. Run, Pip, run. And the kid does a few steps until a voice calls him. Pip, don't, don't leave me. Pip looks back. Gedney is leaning against the side of the half-buried plane, apparently in pain. Inside, Moulton helps Atwood to his feet. Behind them, Danforth, outside, climbs out. At a porthole, Atwood watches helplessly as Pip heads towards his brother. Inside, Daniels is next. The mass of flesh re-enters the cabin. Hairless dog heads bulge from the fleshy mass, and trailing the rest of the body, they lunge. A tentacle wraps around Daniels' boot. He brings out a hunting knife and slices it off. A spray of goo hits his face. Bellowing, he jumps out. Enraged, the thing barrels through the cabin like a freight train, pushing aside the seats. Outside, Pip reaches his brother, who has fallen to his knees. Inside, Atwood screams. No, Pip, get back! But it's too late. Gedney grabs Pip, or rather, the Gedney thing does. Its hungry flesh traps the boy's head. Gedney's face becomes a proboscis full of grinding appendages. Gedney's legs are connected by thick tentacles to the thing inside the plane. Like an obscene hand puppet, he rises, still gripping his brother slash prey. The plane's fuselage splits open, ripe with swollen, invading flesh. The hideous Shogoth surges out. Danforth grabs Atwood and starts running. Daniels is a few steps ahead of them. The thing splats onto the snow and resolves into three Gunnarsons and three Gidneys. Combined with dog parts and crinoid creatures, they rush over to the ground, rolling over molten like an ocean wave. He disappears. Danforth, Atwood, and Daniels run as new faces bloom in the jelly, Pip, and Molten several times over, their slack, dead faces shimmering and rippling. In an instant, they all become Gunnarsons, then Gidneys, all watching as 
the remaining humans flee toward the Arkham. The humans. Running, Atwood is panting, having trouble keeping up. Then, among the shredded tents, a voice stops them. And forth. It's Dyer and Larson, each brandishing twin shotguns. Other guns are strapped to their backs. Larson levels his weapons at them. No, no, please, don't, no. It's us. Don't be a... Larson holds Dyer's arm. Wait, wait. We know them. Don't be so sure. You, stay right there. He tosses them one of his burlap sacks. All of you, eat that. Danforth falls to his knees and rips open the bag. What's this? The bag contains nothing but salt. Go on, chow down. Atwood looks at them, pleadingly. You don't understand. The, the plane, these things, there are, there are things. Something slides in the cold mist moving towards them. Shut up and eat some salt or you'll get some from here. You're all too smart for me. Now, eat a good handful and then we'll see who's who. They watch warily as Atwood and Danforth each take a fistful of salt and gulp it down. They cough and retch, but nothing more. You bastards, are you satisfied now? Are you? You're inhuman, you hear me? Inhuman? You're funny. Daniels watches in silence. You too, Dr. Daniels. Daniels squeals, his whole torso exploding into a million tentacles. Wheeling around, Larson shoots him. The Daniels thing bubbles up and squirms as the wide-eyed men back away. But that thing, it, it only touched him for a second. Larson listens. Movement. Now they'll come after us. Let's move. They run off. On the snow, Daniels is sizzling remains melt away cut to interior abandoned city day lake and his companions work their way down the gargantuan set of steps that like toddlers itching their way to a massive room downstairs interior biology room at the bottom they find themselves in a round chamber pierced by blasted out holes as if it had been invaded by gigantic moles the men peek into an endless tunnel all quiet they move on Mammoth sculptures of unknown gods have toppled like outsized trees. The walls are tiled with bumpy, translucent shapes emitting a soft green glow. Bioluminescence. He presses his hand against a panel. As he pulls away, a lingering silhouette of his hand throbs and fades. Reacting to the heat of our bodies. As they reach the center of the space, they find a web of stalactites and stalagmites reaching down from a broken dome high overhead. Tangled within it, a petrified fusion of bones at least 80 feet high, 100 feet wide at the base. Uh, Side note, didn't realize how often I'd have people who are playing the same characters talking to each other, as is evidence in this interaction. Are those bones? Odd. The men come closer. There's a... A pteranodon skull, almost complete. Gordon points at an enormous club-like femur. Allosaurus. The men spread out, marveling at mollusks, cretaceans, skeletal birds, and mammals. Iguanodon. Rope springs out, a manual drill, and samples the mound. A large, sharp chisel finishes the job. Petrified, fused together by mineral drips. It would take hundreds of millions of years to create a formation of this size. 
a Bodhi illuminates a mastodon skull. But there are higher mammals here. Lake's flashlight beam illuminates a complex mural spiraling its way up a column. All life on Earth, actually. What are you saying? Lake scrutinizes pictograms of familiar animals on Earth. Beneath each one, there is a schematic of muscles, bone, nervous systems. Classified here, insects, mammals, reptiles, birds. He brings out the Necronomicon and deciphers. These beings on the first day created the birds. On the second day, they created the fish and the animals that inhabit the sea. Ropes and Gordon look at the skeletal remains with growing amazement. No, stop. Where are you going with this? Where do you think? Dear God in heaven. There, fused with other creatures of the mound, a human skeleton is perfectly visible. Lake is serene. Yes, I knew it. Humbling, is it not? The grinning skull trembles, a vibration. Light hits their faces. It emanates from one of the doorways across the hall. You feel that? Heat! They can hear distant noises. Gordon and Ropes pull shotguns from their backpacks. Interior, machine room, continuous. They enter an even larger chamber, as big as Rome's Colosseum. Everywhere, water is dripping, and great machines are humming. Massive platforms swing back and lock into place. Copper spheres float overhead, silently orbiting like burnished planets. This area, too, has been tunneled. The men are sweating. They throw off their backpacks, open their parkas. Jesus, it's like an oven in here. Look! He points at one of the machines. It's broken, gutted out. Organic-looking ducts spill onto the floor. Diffuse arcs of electricity radiate from it, forming a field of energy. Debris hovers over it, suspended in midair, as if fixed in like a still photograph. Fascinated, Ropes takes a step forward, inserting his hand into the crackling energy. He grimaces in pain. His hand shrivels before his eyes. Before he can speak, he sucked inward, his body drying up as if vacuumed from within. Gordon heads to the rescue, but Lake stops him. No. The clothing, now rags, falls away from Ropes' body. The mummified husk shrinks into an unrecognizable blob in midair. The men stand back in shock disbelieving. Lake pulls out his watch and moves towards the distortion. Stay away from here. The watch hands accelerate as Lake gets close. Then he throws it at the machine. It arcs, then stops in midair. There, the distortions. They emanate from here. If we find a way to shut this down. Lake leans against the organic console, filling with knobs and protrusions. A hum as they unfold a metallic clamp, trapping his hand. One of the spheres descends, spins, and pops open above Lake's head as if generating power. Lake panics. For the love of God, Gordon, help me! The sphere projects a beam of blinding light down into Lake's head. His arms and body become translucent. He screams. <laughs> Dissolve to vision. Images come in rapid succession. The old ones creating life in a strange room using glassy receptacles charged with electricity and liquids. Alien alchemy at work. Bones and muscles weave and interwine in each receptacle, forming fish, fowl, 
mammals. Then a faint otherworldly clamor reaches Lake's ears, a chorus of 10,000 voices. He finds himself gazing over an alien city and its movement of glory, gleaming spheres, cigarettes, temples, even the mountains look new and majestic. The lower slopes are covered in green jungle. The skies are alive with soaring star-headed creatures gliding in a majestic formation, peeling out from behind radiant golden clouds down, down into a maelstrom of war. The broad smoke-filled causeways of the city are covered with surging agglutinations of slime, which fling up long tentacles to ensnare the winged aliens and pull them in and wrap hungry orifices over their wriggling, helpless bodies. The Shoggoths decapitate the old ones. Underwater, the stone coffins splash down. Away from the reach of the Shoggoths, they bob gently in the water. Camera comes up. The distant mountains are in flames. On the horizon, amidst columns of smoke, a massive thing as tall as the mountains seems to undulate. As it rises, flashback ends. The ray of beam stops and the sphere retracts as silently as it descended. The contraption that held Lake's hand folds back into the console. Lake staggers, blinking and disoriented. His arms and torso are still translucent. Pabodi and Boudreau, Boudreau grab Lake as he collapses, as Gordon runs over. We, we have to warn the others. The ship, they must leave without us. Calm down, you're all right. No, the ones we found underwater, they were heroes, warriors, injured but alive. The old ones were keeping them safe. Safe from what? I'm sorry, Dr. Lake, but... Lake seizes Gordon by the collar. Will you hear me? The Shoggoths, they needed those bodies for summoning to bring forth something much worse than them they needed the bodies to awaken their god and we we helped them shoggoths summoning what on earth i say we go back to the surface and wait yes wait for molten to get back bam a massive shoggoth explodes out from one of the ten tunnels it grabs and devours Pabodi in mid-sentence. Gordon drags Lake away. Boudreaux follows. They run into Gallery. From other tunnels, Shoggoths spring out emitting shrill of piping sounds, displaying pink beaks lined with rows of teeth. They snatch up Gordon. Then Boudreaux. Lake rounds a corner. Catacombs. He reaches a room resembling a burial vault. Lined with crypts containing ancient skeletons, hearing a sound, Lake lies down on the niche end, keeps still. A Shoggoth enters the vault, sniffing, then it withdraws. Lake exhales, looks up, he discovers a hole right above him. A rumble, something plunges down on him. Whap! He's taken. For a few terrifying moments, camera follows upward as his body is devoured and assimilated. Then the Shoggoth gains speed and disappears into the darkness. Fade out, fade in. Exterior, ice field, night. Under a star-filled velvet sky, a dozen oversized albino penguins face a glowing, the glowing mountains. The birds are rigid and silent as if in anticipation. What the hell are they doing? 
exterior, ice field, panorama, same. Larson and Dyer are on the hilltop. Danforth and Atwood stand behind him. The Arkham is a mile below, cloaked in the mist. Through binoculars, flames are visible at the ship's waterline. Spidery humanoid aberrations crawl over the ship's hull, busy as a beehive. They're burning diesel fuel. I think they're freeing the ship. Once at sea, these beings will spread, infect the world. At best, we're all mad, inhabiting a nightmare. At worst, we'll see them reclaim the planet. What if we keep them where they are, surrounded by seawater? We're on an isthmus, inherently unstable. Danforth points to, to, Danforth points to the dark, jagged vault, fault line running through the ice. And that's an ice fracture. I saw it. It's deep. We set charges and blow off the entire peninsula. Using what? Dynamite. We have enough dynamite to do it. We do? The Miskatonic had a ton of it. The Miskatonic? You heard me. Cut to... Oh, sorry, sorry. You're good. Cut to exterior, the Miskatonic, Dave. Four small figures, Dyer, Atwood, Larson, and Danforth, entering, enter the brooding, frozen hall of the Miskatonic. In a hold. In the cavernous forward hold, the men pry open a wooden crate, exposing a fresh supply of dynamite. Larson handles one of the sticks. It crumbles to dust. Shit. It's like it's been here for ages. They sort through the boxes. A third of the sticks are still intact. Question is, how much is enough? They all dig in, amassing a pile of explosives. I have something to collect, too. I won't be a minute. Interior, Miskatonic corridors. Same. Atwood, shotgun in hand, walks through the frozen corridors of the Miskatonic. Loose scraps of paper float by, moved by an unseen breeze. Engine room. The rusty door opens. Atwood peers into the engine room, dead cold with icicles hanging from the boilers. He moves off. Camera pans to reveal a gaping hole. Something soft and wet emerges from it and regards the open door. Miskatonic's chapel. Same. Atwood enters the ship's chapel and puts down his shotgun. Below the large wooden cross, he quietly crosses himself. Behind the altar, he breaks through a sheet of ice and opens drawers and cabinets. At last, he finds what he's looking for, a Bible. As he turns to leave, he sees something briefly reflected in the cracked glass of the cabinet. He spins around to witness a glistening shape resolved into the form of a man standing in the doorway. It's Lake. He gazes balefully at Atwood. Lake, how did you... The lake thing laughs, a wet, horrible noise. (laughs) Not lake. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in in green pastures. He utters the name as if it were an unfamiliar memory. Lake is here with us. He wants to know that it was them. The old ones who brought life to this planet, not your god. The lake thing shimmers and glides up to Atwood. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. They created life many times on many worlds. First out of hunger, then out of boredom they created men. Yes, they made you a house pet and gave you doubts and fears and hope and faith, made you more entertaining to watch, like a puppy chasing its tail. 
tentacles envelop Atwood in a smothering embrace. Go on, little man. Finish your prayer. You know that no one is listening. Atwood struggles. The lake thing wraps a tentacle around the man's neck and pulls him close. Lake's face slowly, painfully reshapes itself into that of Atwood. The suffocating man is now staring at himself. In your merciful hands. Overcome, Atwood can't go on. He extends his hand and grabs the shotgun. A surge of wet, rubbery tentacles invade Atwood's neck. His face becomes bestial, with a huge, grinning mouth and sharp teeth. It lunges. Outside, on the ice. Later. Outside the Miskatonic, the men lash three crates of dynamite onto a dog sled. From inside the boat, the sound of a shot. Atwood. Where's Atwood? I, I'm sorry. The, the shotgun. I heard something and it went off. The men look up at the highest of the Miskatonic's rusty decks. They see Atwood standing woodenly at the rail. I, I'm sorry. I, I found what I was looking for. He lifts the Bible. Danforth and Dyer exchange a look. Atwood seems distant, ready to die. We'll get down here now. We have no time to waste. Atwood stands there, watching them work. Finally, he starts down. We had no real hope, but this last plan gave us something to hold on to. Cut to interior military hospital day. End flashback. Back to 1939. In the greenhouse of the military hospital, Starkweather sits opposite old haunted Dyer, who is in handcuffs. Something to act on. Tears run down his wizened cheeks. Yes, go on. It's all right, Dyer. I'm here. But Dyer is looking at the consul, who comes in from the lush gardens outside. Captain, we've had a word from London. Warsaw has fallen. As Starkweather opens his orders, the consul glances at Dyer. They say this Arkham inquiry, it's it's not worth it any more of your time. They, they want you to sail tonight to... I understand. Say no more. Please, not now. The consul moves away. Please, tell me what happened to Danforth, to Larson. Dyer nods, looks at Starkweather, readying to finish the tale. Cut to exterior, crevasse, night. Roped together, Larson and Atwood are deep in the crevasse, setting charges of dynamite and stringing lengths of fused wire. Shreds of fog blow past them. Dyer and Danforth work on another section closer to the surface. Hearing chanting, Dyer cautiously raises his head. Keep working. Staying low, he grabs a shotgun and moves off toward the bonfires around the ship. Closer. The scorched tents billow in the night wind. The empty stone monoliths and their lids are scattered about. Dyer hides and spies on the remnants of the men from the Arkham, now fused into grotesque, multi-limbed, crawling things. Their arachnoid arms have speared the still-twitching bodies of the exhumed old ones. They intone a guttural phrase. Oh, boy. <laughs> Finglui... M- I used to be able to do this. Finglui McGlue... <laughs> McGlue of Nath Cthulhu Relea Vaganagel Futegen. Oh, dear God. A crude welter of symbols and stones is arranged in a ritual circle. Impaled on stakes, lifeless alien heads drip blood. Dyer sees the monstrous beings genuflect towards the mountains in expectation. He follows their gaze. As beams of greenish aurora australis reach up from behind the peaks. 
Clouds boil up as in a gathering storm. What the hell? He scurries away. Ether crevasse. Dyer comes running and finds Danforth climbing out. Now! Touch it off now! Now! Do you hear? Larson and Atwood. It doesn't matter. Set it off. You hear? Don't wait. Danforth frantically wires up the detonator. Hands shaking. Dyer darts along the crevasse following the fuse wire. Larson! Atwood! Inside the fissure. Larson hears the shouts as he places the last of the dynamite. Ready. Let's get. When he turns, he sees Atwood ripping down the wires. Larson chuckles. You, whatever the fuck you are, you're good. You got me. Atwood turns and starts to transform. But you really don't know shit about explosives, do you? The Atwood thing lunges, but Larson grabs his shotgun and points them, not at the creature, but at the dynamite. Bam. Ice field. A blinding series of explosions rockets along the ice fissure, lighting up the night. A mighty sound wells up from below. Danforth and Dyer are thrown back as the world heaves and bucks. Gargantuan shards of ice lift from the sea, then slide away the entire isthmus is breaking apart. At the Arkham. The creatures turn, reacting to the explosions. Like spiders, they leap toward the crevasse. Running. The two men head for the ship. Sheets of seawater wash over their boots as the ice flow tilts under their feet. They're off the ship. Keep running. Behind them, the creatures howl as the salt water overruns their extremities, burning away hunks of flesh. In the middle of it all, the Arkham, surrounded by smoke, rolls slowly toward her port side. A huge insect-like thing lands on ahead of Danforth, swatting at him. He ducks and manages to shoot. The thing goes down, dragging its wounded membranes. A pack of six-legged, snarling dog things is expelled from the boiling flesh, their backs alive with tendrils. Danforth shoots again. Click. He's out of shells. The dogs leap. Suddenly, Danforth's legs go out from under him and he skids into the widening gap. In the gap. Danforth grabs a handhold, dangling over oblivion. Hunks of ice slide past. The dog things tumble past him into the darkness, but transform rapidly enough to grip the ice walls and climb. Their heads fuse and form a massive maw, open and hungry. Danforth slides toward it. From out of nowhere, Dyer's hand reaches down, seizing Danforth. My turn, pal. He shoots at the climbing creature and pulls Danforth up. For a moment, the two friends look at each other, remembering. The ship, it's free. The Arkham is drifting away, heeled over from the still open gash in her side. The Arkham. Danforth and Dyer grab into a trailing hauser. Two creatures leap after them, spouting spidery legs, seizing the same line. Climbing for all he's worth, Dyer loses his shotgun. Danforth fires, blasting the first monster, sending it bubbling and boiling into the sea. But the second Shogath is gaining on them, spouting more limbs. They reach the deck. The creature keeps climbing right behind them. Danforth points the gun, click, out of shells. He starts reloading. In a tool cabinet next to one of the massive drills, Dyer finds a fire axe. He hacks at the hauser. The Shogath throws out three tentacles, which grab the rail. Dyer slices through them, then chops the rope. The Shogath tumbles to its watery death. In the water, it disintegrates, squealing and squirming. Exterior, Arkham Deck. The freshly severed tentacles roll and grow exponentially, ballooning tenfold. Glowing stalks burgeon from the fingers, shining with new life. Then, a roaring sound fills the air. 
Bill. Oh, Jesus, Bill, we're in hell. Danforth and Dyer look back as up from behind the mountain range comes a heaving titan, Cthulhu. It towers in the darkness, shifting and swaying. Its membranous wings extend, filling the horizon, its abominable head silhouetted by lightning in the clouds. Danforth and Dyer flee into the ship's bowels. The growing shoguths pour down a, a deck grate in pursuit. Interior, the ship, night. Danforth and Dyer run through a corridor. The floors are dark with blood. The shogath flesh forms in through the ventilation grills. Snatching at Dyer, who swings his axe. Danforth fires wildly at anything that moves. They enter a folded hold. Sorry. They enter a flooded hold and jump waist deep into the salt water. They wade frantically into a storage room. The shrieking shogath makes contact with the water and steams and bubbles. A growing rumble. Exterior, the Arkham, night. The writhing Cthulhu looms over the ship, black against the starry sky. The creature squeezes the vessel, bending steel plates, popping rivets. It plucks the Arkham from the water and cracks it like a boiled egg. Dozens of fleshy organs explode into the mess hall, the cabins, the bridge. Dyer and Danforth hold for dear life as the storage room turns over 360 degrees. Exterior, the Arkham, continuous. Slow motion. The Arkham tumbles slowly through the air, thrown by the thing. The ship comes down to the huge splash. Interior, various views, corridors of the ship. Water rushes in through every opening in the ship, flooding the engine room, the mess hall, the lab, in each instance destroying shoguts, washing them away in hissing, steaming chaos. Interior, storeroom. Dyer hits the floor hard. Icy water rushes in. Staggering to his feet, Dyer pushes the steel door shut and locks it. Danforth lurches to a porthole and beholds a mind-snapping image. Exterior, shoreline, continuous. The Cthulhu, impossibly big. Its black, sparkling body throbbing with energy. Interior, storeroom. Then Danforth sees something else. Oh, no. No. Dyer turns to him. Danforth is pale and will not speak. What? What is it? In shock, Danforth slams a shutter over the porthole, locks it. He puts down his shotgun and sinks down onto a bench. No, no, please. Tell me what you saw. He saw the future. A Shoggoth resolves into the form of Professor Lake and steps from the shadows. You too, Dyer. You saw the dark man. Dyer freezes in recognition. Danforth edges toward the shotgun. In your dreams... Dreams are a form of knowledge. Isn't that what you crave? Knowledge? Then learn this. The dark man is us. For one of us can contain all. Indeed, our name is Legion. You may warn everyone. There will be others who will come here. The old ones gave you pride. Pride was their downfall. It will be yours. Danforth snatches up the gun. Lake sends out a stalk of protoplasm engulfing his arm. It's only a matter of time, and we have all the time in the world. A swish of the axe as Dyer slices the Shagoth flesh in two, freeing Danforth. Bam! Danforth fires. Lake screeches and screams, falling backwards and decomposing into a mass of ooze. Oh, oh God. Lake's Shagoth tissue wriggles up Danforth's sleeve. 
He flings off his jacket, rips open his shirt, and exposes his bicep, which has been invaded by the opalescent jelly. Dyer, shoot me. Shoot me. Now. Danforth's arm starts to bubble and mutate. I can't. I... Bill, please, I beg you. Do it, Bill. I can feel it taking over. Please, let me choose how I die. Grimacing, Dyer points the gun and shoots. Danforth drops to his knees, covered in blood. He stares glassy-eyed at Dyer. I... I'm so sorry. I am so sorry. Danforth dies in Dyer's arms. Dyer cries, embracing the corpse. Suddenly, from outside, in the ship's corridor... Dyer hears voices. He scrambles backward, holding Danforth's body. He curls up, trembling in the water. He waits, heart pounding. Wet, shuffling noises move closer and closer. Horrible whispers. Then the doorknob slowly turns. Then it rattles. A moment later, an awful bang as something pounds on the door hard. It bursts open. A figure is silhouetted, speaking incomprehensibly. With a scream, Dyer leaps up. In flashback. Interior storeroom day. Dyer's axe connects with a hapless sailor from the Royal Navy in 1939. He's quickly surrounded and pinned down by the terrified Australians, and Dyer is impossibly old. The boat around him is a rusted, waterlogged ruin. The men can't contain his inhuman strength as he tears free of his captors. The Australian officer leans down from above, aiming a pistol. Bang! He shoots. Dyer bleeds in slow motion. One by one, the drops of blood fall from his hands, like pearls from a broken necklace. I felt relief. Seeing my blood, someone, a human, had shot me. Dissolved to interior hospital cell night, Dyer finishes his tale, shivering. I hoped to die. I really did. But I now know why I've been spared to deliver this warning. In my mind, to me, this happened yesterday. Just yesterday. Did do you understand? I understand perfectly. Starkweather knocks firmly on the cell door. Two orderlies open it. You killed the men on board the Arkham. You shot Danforth in cold blood. You, sir, sabotaged the expedition. Why or how does not concern me. Now I must go. I sail at midnight. Starkweather hurries for the door. No! No, you're wrong! Mental hospital corridor. The orderly shut the door on Dyer, who screams through the barred window. You can't go! It's still there, waiting for us! In adjacent rooms, other patients scream in excitement. The cacophony becomes unbearable. Starkweather hastens to the exit. Exterior hospital exit, night. Insects are buzzing in the warm night air. Starkweather's warrant officer is hurrying up the path toward the hospital. Good evening, sir. Starkweather sweeps by him, headed for a staff car parked at the curb. Let's get going, Wilson. I've wasted more than enough time here. Cut to exterior ocean day. Jagged blue-green icebergs stretch off into a gray limbo. HMS Moonstone surges through heavy fog into the Antarctic Sea. On Moonstone, from his command on the bridge, Starkweather scans an approaching shoreline with binoculars. A communications officer approaches him. Sir, re report from Hobart, sir. Yes, what does it say? It says, sir, that Mr. William Dyer died in his cell last night. Hanged himself, sir. That will be all. Yes, sir. Starkweather contemplates a cloud approaching the ship as it engulfs them. Dissolved to exterior Antarctic landscape day, a snowstorm ravages the frozen weights. Starkweather appears with half a dozen men on sleds. Half a mile off, he sees a dark line in the ice, a zigzag frozen fissure marking an isthmus that has rejoined the main ice field. Closer in a ragged tent, the ruins of a dog sled, rusting diesel cans, 
Starkweather and the men go down to investigate. Interior tent, day. Starkweather enters the tent, nothing inside but piles of snow and blood-stained autopsy table. Outside, the wind rises. Exterior camp, continuous. Starkweather exits the tent. He looks around, disoriented. All his men have vanished without a trace. Wilson, hello, anyone? And then he sees it, blurry at first, then more clearly. A hooded figure coming toward him through the snow. Closer and closer, the face remains in shadow. In the sky, the clouds begin to churn at super speed. Camera pulls back until the two figures are alone in the vast white plain, dwarfed by the mountains of madness. Superimposure, and at the end of days will come a man that walks like a man, looks like a man, but is not a man. Revelation 519. Fade to black. And that, our friends, is at the Mountains of Madness. So that was a uh, yeah, that was that's a uh, you know, I'll, I'll include the link to this article in the show notes, of course. But Del Toro has recently, you know, said that he's been revisiting this kind of wants to rework it. Hopefully Netflix will uh give him boatloads of money to do this and give him a bit more creative freedom because he says that he would like to make it a bit more weird, a bit more, but more esoteric, which I think we are all in favor of. I can safely mm -hmm. assume. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Definitely. So that that's, I mean, I've read this before. I think it's a good script. It's even better with all of you joining. And I have to say that <laughs> this was a, a much better experience. So thanks to all of you, I guess, um, before we kind of wrap up, um, thoughts impressions anyone can kind of just like chime in would, would this be a, a movie you wanted to have seen uh would you like to see it done differently i know for a fact that uh, it kind of broke my heart for del toro to say like oh well because prometheus came out i can't make my movie because i did not care for prometheus personally Ugh. yeah I, I mean we don't speak of that movie in our household <laughs> what, what of that the, movie yeah the, the thing with this script is while i like it it is the thing Mm. 100 like percent like and while i love the thing so much and but at the like what year was this supposed to come out because when did the prequel for the thing come out 2011 like, right yeah. so mm -hmm. was this a cause of like that film bombing that you know this was a little too similar in the minds of like producers like i mean i know james cameron wanted to like actually put boatloads of money into this but i guess you know studios were like ah a little too much like that uh prequel and, and again the original thing well you know the the remake didn't do well either so it's kind of like while the story is great it's not marketable until like 20 or 30 years later after the fact you know mm. so it's, i mean it's it's very interesting because it in some ways it, it feels like a way to kind of cram a lot of Lovecraft stuff in, mm -hmm. make it much more approachable. You know, you make the Shagos allergic to sh to salt. That's you know that feels very role playing game. Um, <laughs> it's got it's got a lot of that thing element, and I think because it's going to invite those comparisons because of the setting, because of the sort of the the Arctic or Antarctic uh, setting. So I, I'm the the, the amount of madness is not particularly 
filmable as it's written, right? I mean, I think it's a challenge to like, how do you make like an expedition where half of the story is someone like reading cartouches and like being like, I think that's what this is suggesting based on my inference about certain languages. I mean, it's literally like someone not even looking at it directly, looking at like photographs of them later and like inferring what these might mean. And that's how you get all the like exposition of the great war and things like that. So it's, it's, it's a challenge. And I think, you know, they found a way to kind of, simplify stuff down make the lovecraft sort of more filmable having cthulhu show up at the end is definitely the like if i'm only gonna make one lovecraft movie i'm gonna <laughs> definitely make sure I, I have cthulhu in there but like he already kind of had one shot you already sort of yeah. had cthulhu in like the the, the hellboy movies so yeah exactly. you know, yeah having the shoggoths be the cultists is sort of a, is also an interesting twist on things mm -hmm. <laughs> I am. Um, I had heard that this script was very similar to The Terror, which was a 2018 uh, mm. miniseries. The first season takes is um, takes place on a, a cold weather expedition that failed. It was a real expedition, but reading the script and having watched that series, there's like shot for shot. And I don't. I don't think anybody who was involved with this script was on that show. But like when he's um, you know got the gear on and he's like looking at the ship, that happens in The Terror, like shot for shot. Um, so definitely, I, I mean, I would assume they were influenced by, you know, kind of some homage going on, but it's really similar. And the, the terror is not about, it's not even the same region of the world, but it's very cold. Mm. Um, but it's, it's very similar. They add in like, um, some love, sort of pseudo Lovecraftian elements to that series. It's based on Dan Simmons novel. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, I definitely see it like, I was kind of shocked with how similar the shot, it's like, they just stole his shot list. And we're like, okay, this is sounding creepy and now we're going to film it. So it's kind of nice to have the image. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's something that James and I talk a lot about on this podcast in the sense of like how, how much of Lovecraft stuff is just kind of ubiquitous, even if people don't realize it. Like someone could watch this movie as, as it exists in the script and just be like, well, I've seen that in The Thing. There's also kind of bits of uh mary shelley's frankenstein at least in the framing of like you know stuck in the ice and here comes this person who kind of tells you the story um and just many other things where someone's like Ugh, I i've seen this all before not realizing like yes but this story this has existed since like you know for uh, almost a uh, hundred years at this point so it's like you know is it not like prometheus aside could it just be a factor of like well, it's kind of too late because we've seen so many elements of this exact story in so many other things that people are just like, well, I've seen it already. It was like, yes, but you don't realize where it came from initially kind of a thing. I think I think you could you could lean more into the sort of like the scope and scale, right? I mean, you get a bit of that with like mankind was created as pets. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like it's almost played as a laugh <laughs> rather than like sort of the real implications. But I think you could, you know, lean into the size of what that means, right? Like that we are the footnote of this sort of cosmic war. That, you know, you know, when Lovecraft gets weird and big is I think when he's a lot more interesting and a lot more fun. And it's just what he sort of excels at is ex it's explaining a sort of a, a world that is just so much larger than our own small sort of history. And you in it'd be interesting to see how it's filmed. Like, you know, if they kind of compare like, oh, you know, gearing up for World War II, this, you know, existential conflict, but even that is like a blip compared to, you know, what's mm -hmm. going on. You know, someone who is from, in my opinion, played with Lovecraft in a modern era really successfully is Charlie Strauss's Colder War. 
uh, which is essentially taking like, what if the Soviet Union and America begin like grabbing Lovecraftian horrors to launch at each other? <laughs> and what are the implications <laughs> of that? The, I think the original title of it was called The Shoggoth Gap. Like that's like, you know, sort of the level of, you know, how you can kind of play with these things in a, in a modern setting, although even the Cold War by now feels like ancient history. Um, mm. But yeah, I mean, this, but as you say, I mean, there's even a testing scene like there is in the thing, like with right. the salt as opposed to the, you know, the <laughs> the, yeah. the blood. The blood, yeah. I, I think, I mean, if you're trying to just get this in people's room and get people interested in this, maybe you, you try to rely on stuff that's come before and then change it as it goes along. But yeah, I feel like that's, there's a little, it's, it's more than homage. It's, I think that's exactly it. I think in that King's cast interview with Del Toro, when he's talking about it, he even says that he wrote this in the frame of mind of what was going to be most likely to make it through the Hollywood machine. And so I can right. see a lot of these things in here like, okay, yeah, we've seen that, but that might've been a more successful approach trying to get it through. Um, and it's, I mean, at the end of the day though, it's Del Toro. So even if they are things that we've seen before, have we ever seen Del Toro do them? And isn't Del Toro <laughs> going to try to do them in at least an interesting way, if not an innovative way? Mm. So I, you know, I think I think some credit needs to go to Del Toro, both as author of the script, but also as the guy who's going to be making the movie. We like, yeah. I would say, probably we all like Del Toro, or at least yeah. have some kind of appreciation for the man. So I mean, yeah, we I think we can give him some credit to try to pull some of these things off, even though they may seem derivative on the page, they may seem a lot more dynamic on the screen under his direction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there like there there are things I like about the script, um, like quite a lot, and I think that uh, you know, like uh, like Lehman mentioned, the Cosmic War. I like how he frames it kind of as a war in heaven, because I always sort of thought that was sort of Lovecraft's kind of, you know, sort of atheist framing of, you know, prehistory, right? This idea that the the elder things, the 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 old ones, were like. You know, they were like the angels that, you know, the, the you know, the side that, cr that created humanity having a war sort of with their slaves. And so I've, I like that moment where it's sort of like they're like the angels in a golden sky. I really like that. Mm -hmm. um, and even to some extent, you know, there's that sort of fall of Cthulhu in, in the book. You know, there's a sort of idea that, you know, Cthulhu and a star spawn come down and they're they're sort of the satanic figures you know, that are fighting against the elder things of the Shuggoths. Um, but I think kind of like everybody has said, boy, it really does rely super, super heavily on the thing sort of, and it does feel like too much, you know, mm -hmm. like I'd, I'd like to see love and I'm not slavish to the text at all. Uh, I'm really, I'm not that kind of person when I watch these films, but um, I, I feel like alien or uh, Lovecraft Shuggoths are really meant to be alien and the sort of this reliance on them always turning into humans feels a little lazy or something. So I feel like if you're doing anything with Lovecraft, maybe don't name any villainous figure the Dark Man. Just maybe. <laughs> yeah. 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 And mm -hmm. I'd say this is someone who dresses up like Lovecraft once a week. Like, you know, <laughs> maybe just maybe just rethink that the yeah. scary man that's a good know. plan not a red. <laughs> conjures the wrong imagery yeah or the, the wrong yeah kind of that's a that's a very good point. connects the wrong dots quite frankly yeah. <laughs> um yeah and, and i know a lot of people say it like you know in the age of of you know netflix and hulu and amazon and all these kind of things were like the, the properties we've always wanted to see are now kind of being brought to life and and also in the mini series or 
long series kind of way. I could see this. I can see this as a mini series, as a few episodes, because this is one of I think it's um, Lovecraft's longest work at the Mountains of Madness certainly is. And it is split into certain parts. Um, and so I could see like spending a little bit more time with this, even not just making necessarily a single movie out of it, because I do think the script builds very well um, to mm -hmm. and, like even though I've read this before sitting through it again with like all of you just kind of like reading it like I'm I'm enraptured again of just like this conclusion and how it wraps up and just like yeah so give me don't even give me a two and a half hour movie give me a five six episode miniseries and I'm fully on board with this well, the time dilation, really does rush through the yeah. time dilations are interesting and they give you something you can play with because when the first one happens mm -hmm. and there's like the food is all rotted I was like oh like is he still in his like, is he still having his weird, like, psychotic break here? Like, that's, mm -hmm. that's an int that, 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 that gripped me, and it was, and it's different from what Lovecraft did. And mm -hmm. being able to play with time in an interesting way, I think also allows you to do some cool things, right? Like, I, I don't know, that, I think that that's something you could, especially if you had more time to work on it. Oh, <laughs> like, the, like the dreams, like his mm -hmm. dream um, really reminded me of uh, Prince of Darkness when they are having yeah. the yep. dreams of like Satan from the Sententakion's back of time mm. um, to the present. <laughs> and then, you know, like coming back at the end with the, like you've seen the future. And then, um, I don't know, I really thought there was going to be more of a Naralithotep tie-in <laughs> with the, yeah. the dark man on the ice and everything. But, mm -hmm. but yeah, mini series, you could really kind of um, delve into those ideas and elements. Yeah, to return to like the initial question, like would you would I watch this movie? Um, a miniseries. I want to see him rewrite this because everything that enraptured yeah. me in this yeah. script was his glorious descriptions of like the effects he's envisioning and his the scene pacing. It was not the story. It was not the characters. Like you know, Pip's relationship with his brother could have been interesting, but we got like two lines to indicate they even had a relationship. Right. Um, so yeah, a miniseries would be great, but he needs to rewrite it. Like it's, I would, you know, I'm, yeah. I would, as a film critic, I'm throwing this one back. He's got to yeah. rewrite it. Like, fridging, <laughs> fridging, fridging, fridging the wife and baby off screen Ooh, for like God, maximum yeah. dire man pain. I know, I know. It's also like, Ooh, <laughs> yeah. Mm, yeah, two, two sort of name women characters, I think maybe. Yeah. And, and you, you killed one off. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no. Not only has this movie does this not pass the Bechdel test, this movie has not even heard of what the Bechdel test is. <laughs> no, it just that was a that was a big sort of Christopher Nolan move. I was just like, like let's let's maybe. Um... <laughs> yeah, there were have... there were times when I was when I was trying to remember which white guy voice I was using for which white guy. <laughs> Spoiler like, alert: they're pretty... all the same always. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure you could do a drinking game based on like how I couldn't remember which white guy was which white guy. I'll, yeah. I'll tell you what I've, what I've liked to see. I would have liked to seen his, his notebook, like to see his doodles for like, how mm. does he picture the, the, the elder ones? Cause you know, I, I grew up with the Barlow's guide to extraterrestrials, which is the first time I ever saw like kind of a anything, anything Lovecraft you know, was that like very iconic drawing of it, but to sort of see like how he envisions a Shawgoth, how he envisions those, uh, those monoliths that again, you know, like, or the city itself, right? I think that, I think reading a storyboard or flipping through a storyboard <laughs> of this, mm -hmm. I think would give you a lot more of what potential is there than kind of the words we saw. Cause it, in, in an interesting way, you know, whereas Lovecraft is all about describing the indescribable, mm -hmm. I think with Del Toro, it's being able to present yeah. a sort of ineffable, I mean, to that point, I kind of like with the the way that modern CGI works, like the the Shogoths need to be completely unintelligible. Like, 
I, I think that like we've seen so many depictions of a thing turning into a thing that becomes humanoid and like I don't need to see an appendage that sprouts out and walks. I want something that looks like you just hit randomize in Maya and we're like, I don't care. Like, <laughs> I'm gonna say just 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 have it be those like AI generated sequences. Yes. Like, it's like a, no, a billion hundred percent. Like set set some machine learning algorithm to just like make me something that keeps moving. Yeah. Um because like I feel like that's the that's the well, you know, one of the hallmarks people make fun of is that the descriptions in Lovecraft sometimes are like the unknowable, unseeable thing. <laughs> yeah, in, like, with oh, with cool. the multi-syllabic words that don't make mm. that are confusing. So yeah. like, do that. Ma well, make why, it so it, hard to understand. It's why in the script it's almost comedy when it's like, and then appears Cthulhu. I'm like, okay, like, <laughs> right? Like, like Cthulhu is a giant sort of like McDonald's M arch at this point. So sort of like, <laughs> it's it, but you know it's true. Yeah, I, I I'd like to see I I've I took a computer class, a computer like coding class in high school, and one of the most interesting things that came about was like when I got the coding wrong and seeing what came about from it. So like that's a great idea for like these just like craft something on a computer, then just like change one little line of it so it's a mistake. Because in a way, that's kind of what mankind is supposed to be in this thing anyway. It's just like it it's just kind of a joke and a mistake. So like. Let a computer just make something which is entirely random and weird and maybe doesn't make sense, but that's kind of what I want to see. Because, yeah, how many times can we have kind of like a cabbage with tentacles? Like, okay, cool, I, I get it. It's a thing, yeah. It's yeah. horrible to be lines, old, but it's also puppy faces. <laughs> it'd be cool to see the the mistakes too, because presumably they didn't start with human, you know, they didn't start with humans. Yeah. Right. Let's flash through some of those like humanoid mistakes. I saw a horror film a couple of years ago that was literally an eight minute long film that was just computer generated AI or an algorithm of textures and shapes. And it was, that was all it was. It was that and like pulsing for eight minutes. And it was like, mm -hmm. that would be a great insert in this, just like a disgusting, like, because it went from <laughs> viscous to like, you know, prickly. It was, uh, it was fantastic. Mm -hmm. It was so good, but and, yes. and we. Yeah, because we, James and I have, we've taken down our episode on uh, The Color to Space after the accusations of um, Richard Stanley kind of came out. Uh, but one thing that we did love about The Color to Space was how it, it was not afraid to get weird and psychedelic. And I think that's kind of what a movie like this needs to be to kind of stand out, especially from something like a Prometheus or, or even The Thing, which was great, but also like was still kind of very much in firmly in a world that is mostly understandable uh, or, or that we can kind of interpret. And yeah, it, it's that it's that challenge of like, how does how does a filmmaker make something which is for a narrator indescribable? Um, it's an unenviable task. Right. So but if there's anyone that can do it, it's Guillermo del Toro. You know, pe people always say, you know, they always say that Lovecraft is unfilmable. And I've, I've never really believed that because I think we have. There's There are several good attempts at it. Um, but I think the thing is, it's it's never about, <laughs> it's never about effects, you know, and it's never about the monster itself. It's always about mood and, um, mm -hmm. you know, atmosphere. I think the people that, that pay attention to the atmosphere, you know, besides the tentacle. I mean, the tentacles are always good. We always want the tentacles. <laughs> but but I think if you always. can pay attention to the mood and getting the mood right and the atmosphere right, then I think that's 90% of the way to Lovecraft. You know? Yeah, one 100%. Um, I guess I, we, have, we have asked so much of both uh, the listeners and the participants. 
I don't want to hold everyone else up, so we'll kind of kind of wrap this up. This would be the normal part in our podcast when we say, hey, everyone plug your stuff, but there's still a lot of people involved in this. So if you are listening and you are interested in following more uh, of what these people have done, which you should because they're all fantastic people, check in the show notes. We will have links to their work, to their Twitter handles, to everything where you can check them out because they are all um, worth um, interacting with and following. So um, this has been so phenomenal all of you i thank you so much this has been just a, an amalgamation of old friends of new friends this has been so great and i thank you so much for all of you for participating and so to you the participants to you the listeners uh, i want to wish you a happy holidays a uh merry winter solstice if that's your thing um whatever but um yeah this has been absolutely great and um yeah, can't thank you enough for everything. But once again, the participants, the listeners, thank you so much. We will see you in 2022 where we will have even more Lovecraftian horrors, I'm sure. So um, please join us in the new year where uh, in the meantime, we'll be waiting and dreaming with dead Cthulhu in his house in Relia. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 